I'm going to feel rather odd reading out this introduction because the introduction talks about the practical application of technology, which is a real stretch. Games are a practical application <laughs> of technology. Well, yeah, actually, you know what? You're right. They are. Fine. I don't feel bad about it anymore. That's good. <laughs> your, your intro is sufficiently vague to cover almost anything. Good job. Excellent. Thank you. Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. By exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. This episode is brought to you by Clubhouse, the first project management platform for software development that brings everyone on every team together to build better products. Visit this URL, clubhouse, or one word, io, slash 10 the word for more information. We'll talk more about them during the show. Pragmatic is part of the Engineered Network. To support our shows, including this one, head over to our Patreon page, and for other great shows, visit engineered.network today. I'm your host, John Gigi, and today I'm joined by John Syracusa. How's it going, John? Pretty good. I just want to say thank you so much for agreeing to come on to talk about a subject that is very dear to my heart. Um, I'm not a big gamer, but uh, one of the games that I have loved for for as, for as long as I can remember the first time I ever played it uh, is Zelda. And it's uh, it, my, my love affair with Zelda really started with Ocarina of Time, and I do realize that there were games before that, but... Uh, it's um it's one of those ones that I realized, and I think we we're just saying just before we started recording it. It's um it feels strange to me um, if this is an application of technology, but I suppose it is technically. So I'm okay with that as a discussion point for the show. I think anytime is a good time to talk about Zelda on any podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, first of all, I guess the thing with Zelda is that it's um I suppose you consider it a role playing game. Really, I mean, I'm just thinking about it's not it's not really a first person shooter. It's um. Although it has, oh dear, I'm just trying to characterize the game, but ultimately it just draws a lot of from role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons as the the basis of it with like hit points, armor class, magic class, but not not quite the same level. Some of it sort of watered down a bit, a little bit, but I, I sort of wonder if it was really the first um, the first really popular game that was derived from that. I mean, I played Bard's Tale back on the on the PC. Uh, back in the day and that was far more Dungeons and Dragons like and um, whereas Zelda was uh, a lot more I don't know user friendly it's hard to know where to start talking about it yeah I wouldn't characterize it as an RPG like I think I think sometimes people apply that label to it because it appears to have like high fantasy elves wizards magic bows and arrows swords and shields type stuff in it uh, but I think all those, you know, the games that you were talking about, like uh, Bard's Tale or even the text adventures or the Ultima series, and I don't, I don't know the exact timelines, but I, I'm sure there were tons and tons of much more closely related to Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing game games out on the PC long before this. But given the limits of the NES, where the first Zelda appeared, you just, you couldn't have a game like that. There was a reason they were on PCs. It was not enough memory, and not enough storage, and not enough computing power, not enough almost anything to do a giant stat filled rpg with tons of inventory and enemies and graphics and like you know the sort of modern rpg so i think zelda is i mean if you know you just want to characterize a third person game where you see your character and it is in a kind of a high fantasy setting and it takes a few things from that that realm inventory you mentioned you know the hearts for hit points and the trappings of swords and shields and wizards and magic and elves but 
it basically makes a and i used to call them adventure it's not really an adventure game because people think point and click adventures but like a an action adventure like real-time moment to moment sort of like top-down mario with a sword and a little bit of inventory out of it and that's that's what you characterize as being user-friendly in that sort of that more reactive style gameplay where there are systems and there is inventory but for the most part you will not be min maxing you will not be rolling your characters you, you know you won't be overwhelmed you'll mostly just be in there having fun yeah exactly right and one of the things that i also found about the um I guess, okay, so maybe we should talk a little bit about the early Zelda games. I really do want to talk about Breath of the Wild, you know, the most, but I think it's probably a good idea just to quickly cover some of that history of, like, where where it started initially. And I didn't play, as I said, anything prior to Ocarina of Time, and a part of me feels bad about that, but I'm going to work on that because some of that stuff's now um, you can get on the Wii U and some of it's coming to the Switch, um, which we'll talk about later. But some of the 2D stuff is... It hadn't never really gripped me as much. Maybe that's why I didn't play it, but um, uh, so... Uh, just looking back through a little bit of the history, that's like a top-down view with side-scrolling a little bit. Um, so I think it was... Um, so go back to... Hmm, let's talk about like the 2D ones. Uh, so so we've got Link's Awakening. I think that was on the Game Boy. There was a DX version for it for the color, and that was in 98, I think. And 2001, Oracle of Seasons, Oracle of Ages on the Game Boy Color. Um 2004, the Minish Cap on the Game Boy Advance, and 2013, that was a link of between worlds on the 3DS, which I very nearly got, and then my son broke his 3DS, and then I didn't. So, hmm. But I never actually had a Game Boy Color or uh, or an original Game Boy. Did you ever play any of those ones? So I, I think we're kind of on the same page uh, about Zelda in that uh, my love of, well, I can say my love of the game started with the 3D games, but the, the 3D games are what I think about and care about. I... I didn't have any systems that could play the 2D Zeldas when they came out, but I was alive then and my friends had them. And that's where I started to get obsessed with the game is seeing that they had it because they had, you know, an NES and they had Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt and all the other stuff, which I played and loved. Um, But they also had this other game, eventually, uh, Zelda, which was very different from all of them, Uh, not just because it was top down, but just because you could tell it came with a big map that you could fold out and there was inventory and there were puzzles. And even though there was combat and everything, you could pretty much go wherever you wanted. And there was an air of mystery about the game. So I I definitely sort of got obsessed with the game uh, back in that era. But because I didn't own it, I never played that game from start to finish. I played many different segments of that game. And I was in the room when other people were playing the game, but I didn't play it. And practically speaking, from a modern perspective, once the 3D Zeldas came out, that's how I want to experience this world. I want to be in it in a more visceral way than any 2D game can provide. And the second thing I'm going to say, which is probably even less popular than me dumping on the 2D Zeldas, is that I consider all of the portable Zeldas second tier. I know there are great games in that series, and I bet a lot of them are better than the original 2D Zeldas on NES and SNES and everything, but I always say, okay, there's the real Zelda games, which go on the TV-connected consoles, and obviously the Switch throws a monkey wrench into this, but we'll get to that eventually. And then there are a bunch of other Zeldas on Game Boy and, and other portable things, and some of them are really good, but they tended to be still 2D, and it's just not my cup of tea. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that, and and I, I, I'm not sure I'd be so brutal to say they were second tier, but they certainly aren't of any interest, the 2D ones to me. They just don't seem to jump out at me. I have sort of fiddled with them a bit but you know similar situation to yourself on on other people's um devices not my own and um 
I guess uh, if we sort of like take that discussion then off the table and say, well, okay, well, yes, there are things they happened, and you know that's great, but uh, we'll, we'll we'll stay focused on the three D stuff. I think that's probably the right way to go. Uh, Although before we move on from that, we should at least recognize that like before the three D games could exist, before that technology existed, the two D games were as good as it got, and you know, so it's things like Link to the Past like is an important. It's it's a great game, and it's an important game. And there was no option for 3D. You know, so I, it's not like I say the 2D games are bad. Like they're they're where uh, I started to get into the series, even though I couldn't actually play them, you know, in my own house because I didn't have the systems. That's you know everything that's great about them is what drew me in, and some of those games were really really good. But as soon as you can do a 3D version, I feel like it suits the the game franchise better than 2D. And a lot of people have nostalgia for the 2D, or maybe people like the control of the 2D, and there are reasons to prefer the 2D to the 3D, but as far as I'm concerned, they made the best games they could possibly make with the technology available, and as soon as 3D technology is available, I'm no longer interested in 2D Zeldas. <laughs> uh, not because they're not good games, but just because 3D and and maybe even maybe even an open world, but we'll, again, when we talk about Breath of the Wild, we'll talk about that, is the way I feel like this franchise is best served. Mm. Yeah, another thing that I was thinking along those lines is that part of my enjoyment of games like Mario, because I'm a bit of a Super Mario fan back in the day, because that those were the games that I was playing uh, on a console, and uh, the original Super Mario Brothers and two and three, you know, and Super Mario World, and when they went 3D, I actually lost interest. I found it was less suitable to or what what I was expecting or what I enjoyed about you know, the continuous side-scrolling, you know, kind of uh, the mechanics of of Mario. And the funny thing is with Zelda, it's the other way around, is that I felt that the 3D were, in fact, the uh, the way it is best represented and best enjoyed that, that suits the format. So, I don't know, part of me feels like I'm... I'm the Mario side of me would say that I'm I'm an old old fogey and I'm you know going with what I used to and get off my lawn. And the other side of me is saying I'm embracing 3D in the future with Zelda. So, hmm, I don't know, maybe... Hmm. It's in, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's interesting because I, you know, so I, I see where you're coming from there, and I, I think I mostly agree. Uh, it's just that because I, I think when Mario moved from 2D to 3D, it transformed in a more fundamental way than Zelda did because Zelda was trying to do as as best it could all of the things that are better done in 3D, whereas Mario had done what it had set out to do in 2D very well, and when you went to 3D, you couldn't. You couldn't and shouldn't, and they didn't reproduce like t- try to do what they were doing in two D and three D because like the constraints were so part of the experience of Mario, just like the, the jumping, the air control, the way you are constrained to two dimensions, the the going in front of and back of things. Like it, the, Mario was transformed as a franchise into a new thing. Now I happen to like the three D Mario's better than the two D, but I think they are much different games in spirit than the 2d ones so if you really love the 2d mario games i can see how the 3d ones feel like eh, that's a different it's almost like a different franchise yeah that's it exactly it is a it is a very different feel to the games and the the the, the part of me that's a, that i guess this is in support of people that love the 2d zeldas is that you know maybe i just learned to love mario back when it was in that form and and i just prefer it that way and and the new ones may be mario in name but perhaps not in the same uh, certainly not in the same gameplay style um, and not, perhaps not necessarily the same spirit, but in the end, um, I, I, I think the world's a better place that there is 3D Mario. But it just, for whatever reason, never really, never really attracted me. But uh, anyway, interesting, um, interesting discussion. I think uh, in terms of 
keeping us on uh, on Zelda, though, get back on track regarding that. I think I just want to also acknowledge that, yes, there are games that have Zelda as a character, but I'm not particularly interested in talking about those either. So I know that Zelda's a character, only, I'm pretty sure, in Super Smash Brothers. Um, then there's Hyrule Warriors, which is another one. Um, Triforce Heroes, I think, is another one. And, of course, there's a Mario Kart. He has a character on Mario Kart. So four, four Sword Adventures, there's a million. Like all the Nintendo franchise characters are all over their things. But, you know, it's a Mario plays tennis too. So we're not talking about those games. We talk about <laughs> Mario games, right? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that is very true. Yes. So, um, yes. And Zelda's, Zelda's okay in Mario Kart. I don't know. But uh, never mind. So, all right. So let, let, focusing on the console stuff, I guess, then just, just a quick chronology. Uh, the Fam- Famicom disk system was the first one. Now, I, I've don't you know never played on that that was in 86 but uh apparently it's only ever sold in japan they sold about four million units of it so that that would have been all right but uh, uh ultimately on nes is the first in uh, 1988 was the first it came to the nes so i actually had an nes but i didn't have zelda at that point uh 87 was zelda 2 adventure of link and that was on the nes in 88 as well and um I think uh, the link to the past actually wasn't Super Nintendo. The funny thing is, it also came to the Game Boy Advance a few years later. Actually, I think. So you said you played? Did you play that on the on the NES or just on the friend's Game Boy? I didn't. I don't think I played Link to the Past at all. I think I only watched other people play it because they were refused okay. to put their controller down. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> like is that with Legend of Zelda? I remember my friends being kind of thwarted by it. They'd be like, "I got this game, and unlike every other game I've gotten so far from my NES." Uh, when I tried to play it, I, I'm not quite sure how to make headway because it's it's not there are no levels and it doesn't like guide you from left to right. So what do you do? And as I've got this map and the latest version of Nintendo Power said this, but they weren't they didn't know how to go through it. By the time Link to the Past came out, everybody had figured out, oh, this is what a Zelda game is like, and they're like, this is the greatest Zelda game ever, and they just play like crazy. Zelda two less so. That was the side scrolly one. I, I'm mm. not sure if I even knew any friends who had that, but. A link to the past. I only watch other people play. Fair enough. So the first, um, now getting to the big one, which is, of course, Ocarina of Time. So that was in 1980, 1998, and that was released first on the Nintendo 64, uh, which I had, and then later I think it was released in the GameCube in 2002. So the thing about it that blew me away, I guess, um, was that it is completely unlike anything I'd ever played before, and it felt like... Um, the gameplay of being in that 3D world where you could, where Link could go wherever you wanted, um, and, well, within reason, and um, just the the storytelling and the um, and the music, it was just it was such a a beautiful game to play. It was uh, it was so much fun, and uh, it's it, uh, I don't know, I just it just it blew me away as an experience, and that kind of got me hooked. And I've played that. And I've replayed that, and I've replayed that. I forget how many times over the years. And I, I when I when I eventually, um, uh, well, f- funny story. I left home and um, went out on my own, and my my mother kept the Nintendo sixty four for herself, which is interesting. But never mind. Um, so I was emulating it after that, but I was still playing it. So um, yes, that was uh, that that was the first one, and um, the first three D game uh, in the the game space, and. Uh, uh, well, of course, Link has a horse, uh, a pona, which is lovely. And um, I think actually it's the highest ranked game title, according to Metacritic anyway, um, with 99 out of 100, which I think is actually the highest rating of any game, I, I believe. That's pretty weird. Like, I think about Ocarina of Time, like the challenge they had before them, we were saying that like that 3D is suited to what uh, Zelda franchise is trying to do because it's a game about exploration and adventure and 
meeting new creatures and finding new places and exploring secrets and like it was always the game was always about exploring the space exploring the landscape and and the creatures that are there uh it was always so much less about the specific mechanics of combat whether they be side scrolling or top down or whatever you're always going somewhere and finding a thing and and you know visiting different places and talking to people and getting finding items and stuff like that and so it's natural to expand that to to 3d because it's it's you know it's you get more of a sense of place being in these places and exploration feels more like it does to you know uh, we hairless apes like just going over a hill and seeing what's over the next rise and seeing what's around this corner and going down into a, a cave and in a more visceral way than a graphical representation but getting back to this game's amazingly high metacritic ranking th- this Ocarina of Time is an incredibly technically compromised game. Like, and the reason it's so highly rated is because Zelda was a beloved franchise, and everyone's like, "How are you going to change this to 3D?" Not because the 3D doesn't fit the franchise, but because you do have to actually address the minutia of the mechanics. How? All right, so we said Zelda, the Zelda series is not about the specifics of the combat, but you do have to have combat. How do you make that work in 3D? Remember, this time we they just figured out how to make platforming work in 3D which I think was a fundamental change to that franchise, but at least they made a fun, good game that people like, Mario 3D. You know, they, they, they figured out how to make it fun. But you don't, like, hit things with swords or shoot them in 3D. And it's not a first-person shooter, which was the other main 3D sort of genre that had been established. That It's like, well, we know how to do that. That works in 3D. How do you have a third-person adventure exploration combat game in 3D in a way that it it remains accessible and fun to play and it was and and then you know how to fit this kind of how do you fit a 3d world the size that is appropriate for zelda onto a cartridge because nintendo was still stuck on cartridges then like how do you get that to work so the combat system with the z locking and the giant i mean people don't remember this is in your mind you don't think about it but like the four gigantic yellow triangles rotating around the thing you were z locked onto because that was such a core part of the gameplay of like, we're not going to make you face your character towards the thing you're trying to, to hit because that's too hard to do in 3D at the same time as swinging your little sword. We're going to have the Z-lock system that's going to be incredibly obnoxiously in your face and prominent on the screen because it's an entirely new mechanic that you probably have never seen before and it is essential to this. Auto jump versus jumping manually. I remember that was very controversial when it came out. It's like, oh, he jumps automatically. I don't even get to jump in 3D. What the heck is this? Right? And what we learned playing the game was this was all in service of getting out of your way and letting you experience the adventure. It is not a fighting game. It is not a, you know, uh, battle tech or, what, you know, one of those mech games or whatever. It's not, mm. you're not controlling yeah. this incredibly complicated system. It just needs to disappear so you just feel like you're on an adventure. And they figured out how to do that. But they still had to face technical challenges of not having enough memory on a cartridge to have a big game world. So whole sections of it were these crazy... QuickTime VR, 2D, stretched out panorama, low-res, fuzzy Vaseline smear things, you know, all the all the towns and cities that you'd walk through because they just didn't have time or memory uh, to do the, like, uh, to do a full 3D thing. So, like, if Ocarina of Time what, did not solve all those problems and wasn't so amazing all those other aspects, if you look at it just as it is, it's not a 10 out of 10 game. Like, how can you have a 10 out of 10 game that's so incredibly compromised graphically, the, you know, the, the MIDI audio instead of, like, uh, the Red Book CD audio coming off PlayStation 1 discs? Sections of it are in 2D. Like, it just seems like such a mess. But the experience of it was so transcendent 
that everyone just gave a 10 out of 10 and like forgave all of these flaws. Whereas today, if a game like, well, there were minor frame rate dips in the final boss battle, 9.5 out of 10, like Ocarina of Time has so much garbage wrong with it, but everyone was just able to either see past that or just be entirely blinded by what was good about the game and just say, 10 out of 10, greatest game ever. I didn't think they could possibly make a Zelda game in 3D. How could they even do it? But playing the game, the controls fell away. The experience was like everything I dreamed. It's like, it's what was in my head when I was playing Link to the Past or whatever. Like it's, it's my vision come to life. And so that's why everybody loves it. But, you know, objectively, I feel like in a today's much more, harsh and critical and demanding gaming market no one would give this game 10 out of 10 despite it truly being one of the greatest games of all time and i i absolutely agree with all of that and i and i think that if you were to bring that game forward into the present and and have people judge it today they would it would not get 99 out of 100 that is that is for sure um but a lot's changed i guess and the constraints of the, the the console obviously were a big problem and uh uh it also had to it also well I'll, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about this later. I just want to keep moving. But the fact is that um, Ocarina of Time for me still remains my, perhaps nostalgically, my favorite Zelda. But the truth is that Breath of the Wild is, is so much better in so many dimensions that, you know, it's it's kind of probably, uh, I need to be more honest with myself as to which is actually the better game, which is probably Breath of the Wild. So when you played that originally, was that on the Nintendo 64 or GameCube? Uh, Nintendo 64 it actually also came out for one of the the portable systems as well. They did, they redid it with they redid all the character models and everything. Oh, okay. What was that for DS? I think they, it was it was not it wasn't just a port. So the GameCube was was just a an emulated port or whatever. Right. And then they redid the the graphics for the whatever the portable system was. But no, I played it on the N64, the original. So um, a few years later, they they did the the sort of thing that you would do when you spend all that time and money developing that kind of a, a an environment or game engine that they were using to create it, and they did Majora's Mask. Um, with Majora's Mask, personally, I, I think I made it to the Woodfall Temple and then I um, I was emulating it at that point because I didn't have my Nintendo 64 physically and I lost my save games and I never came back to it. So um, Majora's Mask was a, was an interesting game. It was I liked the idea of the, uh, the, the hours and days counting backwards and you had to uh, play, play the song and jump back in time again to keep going, which was an interesting dynamic. But uh, yeah, oh, yeah. So, no. Nobody would have made it. Nobody would make a game like Majora's Mask today. Again, like it's kind of like no. when you have a franchise film and they make a sequel to it. And what if they told you, okay, the sequel to Captain America, the second movie is going to be a romantic comedy? You'd <laughs> be like, what are you talking about? It's Captain. It's Captain America. You have to make another Captain America movie. You can't make a romantic comedy. It's, not, it's the same characters, kind of, kind of the same setting, but it'll be a romantic comedy. Never get funded. So the, the follow up to like this, ten out of ten. Everybody loves the greatest game of all time, Ocarina of Time is a game that is so incredibly unlike Ocarina of Time other than reusing assets and the engine. Like, totally, totally different gameplay, totally different setting. Like, but it was amazing. It was like a remix fever dream. It's worth actually playing through. I tried to get my son to play through it again in emulation, but it kept freezing at a certain point and we couldn't get through it. You know, it's it's kind of a shame that there's never been a good port of that. And the second thing that wouldn't make it in the modern day is you can't ask modern gamers to deal with Majora's Mask 3-Day system or whatever it was. Like, that cycle is too punishing for modern gamers. They'd be like, this is annoying and hard and I can't seem to make any progress. And it's just, you know, but... For the time, we were we were willing to deal with those things. It was incredibly clever when you figure it all out. This was kind of the dawning of like game facts. You could find like Usenet ASCII art posts telling you about uh, you know things that are hidden in the game, but it wasn't at the point where you can just get all the secrets. So it was very mysterious and hard to crack. Mm-hmm. Very weird. It had better graphics on Ocarina of Time because it required the memory expansion. 
so there were better graphics and textures, and it was super creepy and so had some very moody, interesting uh, graphical moments that I still remember to this day. It was punching way above its weight uh, graphically and gameplay-wise, it was it was very unique. So I, it definitely has a soft spot in my heart, my uh, heart, and I think a lot of people. I think it's Esteem has risen over the years, mostly by people who haven't gone back to play it to realize how strange and punishing it is. But it was it was a great game. Yeah, I do need to get back to it and have another crack at it. I uh, I sort of feel like I gave up a little bit too soon on that. But a lot of this, a lot of the stuff that I, I did at the time, it was just uh, you know we were I was emulating it as well, and and I think perhaps it uh, yeah the emulated emulators uh, had trouble dealing with it potentially. I'm not sure, but in the end, um, I'll probably will get back to that at some point. But I've got a couple others on the list first. So uh, speaking of the next one, which is Wind Waker, and that was 2002, and I didn't actually play much of that game i played on a friend's console who had uh, who had it at the time and uh when i got my wii u uh, i i snagged a copy of it uh, of the hd version of it and um it's sitting there on a, on the the stack ready to play next but uh um i just remember that it was uh, it was very cartoony and um it was obviously more polished than ocarina of time or majora's mask from from that perspective but uh, it was uh, it, it felt a bit more cartoony. I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, in any case, yeah, there was big controversy about the game because it, it cell shading and having it look like tunes. And uh, these are people who were growing who had grown up with the other Zelda's. Like Zelda's supposed to be a serious, dark fantasy game. How can you make everything cartoony? Which is ridiculous. Uh, Wind Waker is one of the best looking Zelda games ever. It had it had a, a clear art style and it was so thoroughly and well implemented. This is an interesting case, by the way. Speaking of the HD one. Uh, I played through this the original on the GameCube multiple times, and then I also played through the HD one, I think also multiple times, myself and my son. This is a weird case where the HD one looks great and is a good game, but I think the non-HD one not looks better because obviously it's got giant chunky pixels and, you know, like, like it's graphically worse objectively in terms of technical prowess, but... It, they actually are different art styles. Like in the HD one, they had they made decisions about adding shading and lighting effects and stuff that were just absolutely not there in the original one. If you had made a true HDified version of the original one, it would just up the resolution, but it wouldn't add all that other stuff. So I think they probably made the right choice to give a new look to an old game to make people who had played the original want to play it because it looks different enough. And, you know, I played it and I enjoyed it, but I think the original had the better better art direction, that it was more pure and just fitting with that cell shading style and it Wind Waker is very high on my ranking of all time Zelda games it has its limits and problems but I loved it from the first moment I played it it was it was such a uh, a breath of fresh air um and it was it, it, I, there's almost almost nothing I dislike about it and tons that I like about it so I think you're gonna have a lot of fun with that game especially since I think in the uh the Wii U version they trimmed some of the fetch quests towards the, the like the three quarters of the way through. Kind of like they did in Twilight Princess, where they take some of the parts that were a little bit burdensome and make it a little bit nicer for you, which is nice when they go back and revise games like that. But even even in the original, I you know I thoroughly enjoyed it. Cool. Well, it, like I say, it's sitting on the pile, and it's on the pile because I'm currently working my way through the one from 2006, which I also got the HD version of because. I feel bad because when I was aware of all this happening, but it was around about the time that I got married and had young kids and uh, um, I was aware that these games were coming out, but I could not easily justify, um, well, 
let, let's just say I think my um, uh, yes, my my well being may have been challenged uh, had I chosen uh, the game time and games rather than time with um, with the kids when they were really little. So it's a it's a difficult balance. But in any case, I'm I'm revisiting that now. So I got uh, the HD version of Twilight Princess, and I've been playing through that now for. Uh, well, to be honest, a couple of months now that I've been, um, I've had a little bit, well, I start on Christmas holidays anyhow, but uh, whenever I get a chance, I play with it. But uh, way back when, um, in the mid 2000s, when that did come out originally, I did play with it on my sister's uh, uh, console, but uh, I was only there for a little while. I made it to Farron Forest and uh, uh, I think I cleared that as Wolf Link and then that was that. And um, now that I've come back to it, uh, when I picked up my uh, secondhand Wii U, which was, uh, uh, I thought, a good investment um i've made it i've got all but uh, one piece left of the twilight mirror and i don't have the magic armor yet but um i'm working on it so uh and it's been fantastic but the thing is it's also reminded me considering the the most recent game of zelda i played being breath of the wild um just reminded me of some of the limitations that were very similar to ocarina of time uh in some of the game mechanics but uh, I'm still thoroughly enjoying it, to be honest. Yeah, Twilight Princess was a, a fairly obvious reaction to the fan reaction to Wind Waker. Wind Waker, you know, oh, it's a cartoonish, cell shaded, or whatever. We want dark, serious, uh, uh, you know, more more mature, whatever link. Which I, you know, that's I'm I'm parroting what people said, not what I actually believe, because I think there's nothing immature about Wind Waker. Like it's it's more playful than Twilight Princess, yeah. and it's happier, but it, they're choices anyway uh twilight princess i've always in my mind i always consider ocarina of time turbo because it is so similar to ocarina of time in terms of like sketching out the game but take everything that's in ocarina of time and add an a and b variant and make them bigger and more complicated and add more of them and add a slightly a different twist of a, a different overall story so it's it's got you know, more dungeons, more characters, a more complicated story, more items, more combat. But it, essentially, it is the Ocarina of Time formula. Go to dungeon, get item, defeat person in the dungeon with the item, story beat, next dungeon item, you know, but just expanded. So, and I love Ocarina of Time, so I love Ocarina of Time Turbo. Uh, for a long time, Twilight, well, maybe we'll get to rankings later, Twilight Princess is very often in contention for my favorite uh, Zelda game of all time. But you're right, there are definitely comparisons with Breath of the Wild that are important. And that's kind of how, they, what what's fighting in my head right now. So uh, after that, there was, I think, well, to my mind anyway, the most controversial. And for me personally, the one that I also did have a crack at when I had a Wii was uh, Skyward Sword in 2011. And I really never quite got the hang of the Wiimote Um waving around and i actually put it down in frustration sort of like uh, at the time i think i was a bit more a bit less open-minded uh, to them changing some of the aspects of the gameplay and and as a result i sort of put it down and i haven't gone back to it but um i will go i will go back to it at some point but um i, I distinctly remember the time putting the wiimote down and going back to play um ocarina of time um but yeah, so Skyward Sword, uh, I never really got that far into it, and um, it just felt very strange. Um, I don't know. I don't think it was the most controversial because I think I think Wind Waker was still the most controversial, just because it was you know such a shock from what it came before, and it was so much outcry. Uh, if you in the demos of Skyward Sword, they're like, okay, there's a new Zelda game, and I guess it's got the sword thing, and this is the the era of the Wii, so we're all on board with. Potentially, this will be good. This will be bad. I think it was worse. Had worse reviews than Wind Waker because it's not a good game. As good a game as Wind Waker, but 
just on its face, it's like, oh, we're going to have a Zelda game where you swing the sword. People were pretty much okay with that. The art style was a nice compromise between the cartoony style of uh, Wind Waker and the more realistic style of Twilight Princess. It wasn't as dark as Twilight Princess. You know, the character models were, you know, not as svelte and human-like as Twilight Princess, but they weren't giant head bobblehead things like Wind Waker. The thing about Skyward Sword is some of the best moments and gameplay elements in the entire Zelda series are in that game, but overall, it is not a great game. There's not enough there to make a game. Uh, The sword stuff is... I I feel like once you get on board with it, it works surprisingly well. Uh, Like, like the, the engine is forgiving of the limitations of the control, and it can be kind of fun, and it's an interesting new thing to master. It is not as good a combat system as Twilight Princess or Wind Waker even. No. Uh, it's not a good fit for the series. I'm glad they left it behind. But as a curiosity, like, that's why I feel bad when people say, oh, I haven't played Skyward Sword and I'm never going to. I feel like if you're a Zelda fan, you have to play Skyward Sword. You have to go through the boring, tedious parts just because there are some really good, interesting parts in there. And there are some moments that you can't have with the other games because no other game do you wave around the controller like that. So I, I feel like it's essential despite being not the greatest game in the series. Yeah, and I absolutely am going to go back and give it another chance. But um, So currently my re- replaying list is um, uh, I'm going to finish Twilight Princess, then we'll go back to Wind Waker, and then after that I'll have a crack at uh, Skyward Sword. Uh, I'm probably uh, not... I, I don't think they'll ever... I don't know, maybe they will, maybe they won't. Because, I mean, I guess you could use the Joy-Con in the same fashion and, and re-release that at some point in the future. But uh, I don't See, I don't think they should re-release that just because, like... <laughs> If you were to sketch out what does what does Skyward Sword entail? How many settings? How many dungeons? How many? You know, because it is in the in the old world formula, very similar. Uh, you would see this just not like I don't think there's enough there. It's, it's not. It doesn't didn't feel like a whole Zelda game. It felt unnecessarily padded. Too much repeated visits to the same settings, and the settings they had were good and everything. Like, well, this is also the game where they really heavily experimented with extremely lengthy JRPG style cutscenes. Right. With like like when you start, I mean you've you've started playing it. Like mm. you can't even get into the game until you've endured like thirty minutes of, of cutscenes, which is yeah, that's right. fine, but maybe not at the beginning of the game. Uh you know, and it has some fun mechanics with the running and the bombs. Like it is there's some really good ideas in Skyward Sword. Some of which actually make it into Breath of the Wild. Like it's it's an it was an important game in the development of the Zelda series. We wouldn't have Breath of the Wild without Skyward Sword, Twilight Princess, Wind Waker. And obviously, Ocarina, like all those games, you can see how they all contribute to uh, to Breath of the Wild. And you, if you take Skyward Sword out, you miss out a lot of things about, you know, the, in particular, the, the running versus sprinting and the throwing of items and all the physics-based gameplay that, you know, was just taken up to the next level in Breath of the Wild. Fair enough. I uh, I, I am definitely going to go back to Skyward Sword. And uh, that's one of the things I also do love about Zelda is that they, they do continue every single uh, one that they release has plenty of commonality with the previous ones whether it's reusing like locations or techniques or you know like the targeting for example still thing um going back to ocarina of time that method of uh, of, of of z targeting it's the same the same mechanic exists it's um it's and, and twilight princess and anyway so i i think we should probably start talking about breath of the wild now but um uh <laughs> but before we do actually i'd just like to quickly talk about our sponsor for this episode and that's clubhouse the first project management platform for software development that brings everyone on every team together to build better products. Clubhouse was built from the outset with agile development in mind with an intense focus on intuitiveness and responsiveness. 
With their web app backed by Fastly CDN, it really feels like a local app on any platform. Clubhouse delivers developer-centric tools for everything from Kanban boards to epics, milestones, cards with different card classifications for features, bugs and chores, but it's more Clubhouse's ability to interconnect all of them together that's so impressive. Users have reported creating less duplicates. Navigation is very fast using a common board, but with as many configurable workspaces as you like to customize that board for whatever purpose you might need. Morning stand-ups for different teams, sub-teams, or all the teams, it's up to you. Ultimately, any collaborative project management software has to be as low friction as possible, and not just for software developers, but for everyone in the organization. Marketing, support, management, you name it, the lot. So everyone can contribute and actual collaboration actually happens. Finally, the other part of Clubhouse that really shines is its ability to zoom out from the individual tasks to the overall project status that not only keeps project managers happy, but keeps the team connected to how their part contributes to the greater project and keeps them focused on what matters, delivering a result their customers will enjoy. There are others in the market, but they're not like Clubhouse. And what makes Clubhouse so different is the balance between the right amount of simplicity without sacrificing key functionality, structured to allow genuine cross-functional team collaboration on your project. Clubhouse is a modern software-as-a-service platform with seamless integrations for popular tools like GitHub, Slack, Sentry, and there's lots more. And if the tools that you want to integrate aren't available out of the box, that's okay. There's an extensible REST API in Clubhouse that make integrations straightforward. If you visit this URL, clubhouse or one word, .io slash 10 the word, you can take advantage of a special offer for Engineered Network listeners. Of course, you'll get the 14-day free trial, but if you sign up, you'll get two months free. And because this is a team-centric solution, this offer will work for your team, not just you. The offer is only available to Engineer Network listeners for a limited time, so take advantage of it while you can. Thank you once again to Clubhouse for sponsoring the Engineered Network. So, Breath of the Wild. So, I was quite surprised when I actually did a bit of research on this. Um, I've only got po- uh, five pages of notes. But anyway, um, 300 developers apparently, according to, uh, and I'm going to mangle their name, maybe you can pronounce it better than me, but it's uh, Iaiji Anuma. Anuma. I don't know. I'm sorry. The Breath of the Wild producer uh, said that 300 developers took about four years to develop Breath of the Wild. And they started in 2011 it was originally uh, supposed to go on the Wii U and alone, and they decided to hold it off for the for when the Switch was going to be ready. So, uh, in terms of the scale of Breath of the Wild, that's far over and above any of the other previous developments that they did on any of the other games. Uh, the map itself, just the map of of places to explore, is twelve times the size of Twilight Princess, which and of which Twilight Princess was five times the size, roughly, of Ocarina of Time, and the, it's also made more complicated by the fact that in those there's limited ability to go in the in in the uh, the Z plane. That's well, to say, climb up and swim down. So which you can do so much more in Breath of the Wild. So you have this in huge volume uh, that you that, that just I can see why it took so many people so long to flesh it out. And the amount of detail in there is off the charts. There's it literally has so many things in it. <laughs> it's uh, it's yeah. And uh, the Metacritic score for the game was 97 out of 100, which, to be honest, um, yeah, based on everything that we just talked about, I uh, I, I feel like that's uh, that's almost being a bit harsh. But anyhow. Yeah, it's definitely a rougher critical world where they're going to nitpick at everything. 
Yeah, I think I think Breath of the Wild, like we went through this whole timeline, right? And if you look at the inflection points, obviously uh, the the 2D to 3D is the biggest inflection point in the entire series. The second biggest is Breath of the Wild because there there's so many changes in gameplay and setting and everything with all those different games from Ocarina of Time on. And, you know, even before in the 2D, you had top down, you had side scrolling, you had all the different, you know, going up and down in the in the uh, Z plane, uh, you know, it, in well in, in the in the 2d games so they where they would simulate that but you're like well what's the what's the big deal this is just another 3d zelda it is a it's a different kind of game it is it is taken thrown out the formula that began with ocarina well it began with the original game but was sort of cemented with ocarina of time and said we're not going to do that formula anymore where you have dungeons and you get an item that helps you defeat the thing in the dungeon and you get more powerful and you go to the next dungeon and you know have, like they just they got rid of that. That's not how you play the game anymore. It is no longer a linear series of power advancement through encounters that are laid out before you like set pieces in movies. Uh, how do, and so how do you make a Zelda game that's not like that and still have it feel like Zelda? That was their challenge, and that's what they they did with uh, Breath of the Wild. And I, you know, we all assume that given this inflection point, there will be another series of games that build on Breath of the Wild. I really think there should be because it's a great thing to build on. And I feel like, like we were saying before, it is a natural expansion of Zelda, which is all about exploration. Technically speaking, you couldn't do exploration in something like Twilight Princess, which was like the biggest Ocarina formula game out there. Like you mentioned the size of the map. If you traced on those maps, what are the areas that Link can actually stand on? in the twilight princess map that's the key thing like all right so yeah the map is this big but where can you the player character actually stand and it's this narrow little you know these narrow little rivulets and tunnels because they're guiding you through the game right yeah. whereas in breath of the wild where can link stand anywhere pretty much anywhere in the entire map so it's a massive map and you and you can go everywhere as so you mentioned the 300 developers yeah there's no like no one sees this game and says what did all those 300 developers do nope you you can see what they did. You may think it might be even more how like you would think they would have to need more developers just to place the Korok seeds alone. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it is a major achievement and a major inflection point in the series. So one of the things that you sort of touched on there, I want to sort of circle back to is um, there's a, a little bit of the debate I think about open world versus closed world, and and I. I sort of I read through the definitions of what they consider to be what's generally considered to be an open world, but. I suppose depending upon how you want to look at it, uh, you could argue that Ocarina of Time was in many respects still technically an open world. It's just not as open or perhaps it's um, a more modern open world is more about the sequence that you have to do certain tasks. And the difference for me, or my, more my take on it for Breath of the Wild is that, and, and you touched on this, is that you know there's the the progression from dungeon to dungeon to getting more hearts and more stamina and so on yeah, you know, it's extremely prescriptive in Ocarina of Time and Twilight Princess, for example, because yeah, you'll finish one and then like Midna will tell you helpfully, you know, you got, you got to go into these other um, you know, mirror shards. You know, you should didn't they say something about you know going up into the sky or something? And it's like it'll guide you pretty much any time that you would care to pause for a second and and and, and hint very very strongly where you should go next. Whereas with Breath in the Wild, uh, there really isn't necessarily that because there's so many quests and shrine quests and side quests and it's nowhere near as it's almost like it's not as pushy and and that's and that's so very freeing i think i think the main distinction is that there is no uh artificial barrier to going anywhere so like in, in all the other zelda things 
you physically the game will not fit, let you physically enter any of the dungeons except for the one that you can do next because you can't get to the areas because you don't have the items it's not even an option it doesn't matter how good and determined you are you can't you're not thwarted to go from going someplace by the danger it's like you just can't go there like you can't get to the water temple this tri- there you know unless you find a glitch or a bug in the game where you can clip through a wall and get there there's no going to the water temple until you've done the other ones first period right and the gating factors are very often artificial you haven't talked to this character yet and done this cutscene where someone opens a door for you or it's up on a cliff and you can't get up on the cliff without the grappling hook or whatever right an open world game doesn't stop you from going anywhere with artificial gameplay on. So it may stop you because you'll burn up because you don't have some armor or whatever, but it's like you can run as far in as you can until you catch on fire. Or the enemies are too hard. Well, you could get pretty far by dodging and everything. Probably you won't be able to defeat them, but if you're very clever, maybe. But you're not stopped from going there because there's a door and you don't have the key for it yet or anything like that. Um, and that secondarily, that the entire map is open to you. Not There are no artificial barriers of like, this fog hasn't lifted, so you can't go to this area, or like you automatically get turned back, or there's an invisible wall, or a guard who won't let you through a door. It's like you just walk around them, climb over the wall, uh, you know, do, like <laughs> the, the entire world's open. Yeah. So it's, I, I would definitely not argue any of the other Zelda games are open world because they, in, in those games, if you're thinking from the game designer's perspective, at any given point, they know so much more about you. If they are here, they definitely have these items and they've definitely done these things. Therefore, we can present them with cutscenes that assume they've seen those cutscenes, challenges that assume they have these items because they couldn't even be here if they didn't have them. Whereas an open world game, you can't make those assumptions. So everything in them has to be built to work with whatever the character has. The closest that, that Breath of the Wild comes is the uh, the Great Plateau, where they basically give you all the abilities and all the basic things you'll need to play the whole rest of the game. That's like the little linear tutorial area yeah and they dispense with that and then the the other mechanic from a game design perspective that makes it an open world game is open world games have to scale to work with you know whatever the player happens to have at that moment so if you're designing a game and you just say okay well when we come to this area these enemies all have 10 hit points it's not an open world game because what if the person wanders into there and you're expecting them to be able to make progress, but they can't kill anything with 10 hit points, right? You have to have parts of the world that scale to whatever the, the character is up to. And uh, in Breath of the Wild, probably people who play the game don't even realize this, Breath of the Wild does have areas and aspects of the game that scale based on how well you've been doing, how many hearts you have, what items you have. If it didn't do that, it would either become incredibly boring or be too hard at point. There are things that don't scale, like the Guardians, for example, that... I don't think they get any harder as you get higher and they don't get any easier as you get lower. So if you try to go to the, to the castle the first thing in the game, you'll get blown up by a guardian probably and they'll want to kill you or whatever. So it feels like, oh, this game doesn't scale at all, but it totally does. The random characters in the world do scale so they don't become boring and so they don't kill you with one arrow instantly if you wander into the wrong area of the map. Um, so I feel like the, the that, that may be a very technical detailed definition of what distinguishes open the world from not open world, but the the contrast in the Zelda series couldn't be more sharp, I think. Absolutely. And I guess the other thing that occurs to me is that there are still aspects of certain challenges and only certain challenges, I think, uh, or quests. Uh, the one that comes to mind mostly is the is building Tarrytown. And there's a very long progression of, you know, so many people, so many sons to find. 
you know, and you know all the all the wood you've got to bring in, and it's like there's a there's a there's a strict progression of of things that you have to keep satisfying because every time you go back to the guy and say, hey, here's what you asked for, he's like, yeah, well, you know, I need more in order to get there, but that whole progression on that particular uh, side quest, for example, I don't think you actually need to build Tarrytown in order to actually finish Breath of the Wild. So No, definitely not. No. So I mean, I guess that's the difference, isn't it? So it's okay to have like one one quest has a series of you have to do this in a certain progression, but that's completely separate from every other quest and therefore it's independent. So you can choose to do it when and how you want to, which I guess that's the fundamental difference. I love when people talk about Breath of the Wild, I love hearing what they decide to refer to as side quests. Right. Because in an open world game, everything is a side quest. Like, I know they usually have, like, a main story that you're completing in other open world series or whatever. And there is a main story in Breath of the Wild that you're completing. Obviously, you got you to gotta beat again because hey, it's a Zelda game. Um, but you don't need to do anything in the rest of the game. You don't need to do any shrines. You don't need to free any magic beasts. Like, you can watch on YouTube the people who, like, run immediately and destroy Ganon right after the Great Plateau. It's like the Great Plateau is, is forced linear. <laughs> yeah. Like, you can't get off the area until you do all the things, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Uh, that's that sort of traditional thing. And once that's done, it's open world. Run right again. Beat them. Nothing is stopping you. Didn't do any of the beasts. Didn't do any of the memories. Didn't do Tarrytown. Didn't like everything is a side quest. There is It is the most open of an open world game. Most other open world games say, yeah, there is a main story that you can work through and there's a bunch of side quests, but you can go anywhere, but you're never going to get to the big bad until you've met this person and seen this cutscene, freed these people and seen that cutscene. And like, they force you to do a couple of major events before you can even fight the boss. And Breath of the Wild says, nope, you don't need to do any of that. Like, the, the, the big decision is making the, the great beasts optional. Because they could have said, okay, well, you can never be Ganon until you do all the beasts because those, they need to fire their lasers at him and you can't beat him. But that's not true. You can beat him without any of the red lasers. They just help you significantly. Yeah. But you can beat it without it. And so that, that shows their incredible commitment to open world to say, we are not going to require any major story beats, even on the main storyline, to show how open we want to make it. Yeah, I mean, get off the main pla- uh, the uh, the Great Plateau, um, grab a mop, and go and beat Ganon with a with a mop. Or um, yep, is, is it actually possible to beat Ganon with a mop? I mean, you need a lot of mops. I, go watch YouTube. I think pretty much they, everyone has beaten Ganon. I mean, they'll do anything. That, that's I think like uh, Breath of the Wild was made in a time when they know. Uh, when they know the uh, the world of gaming that's out there that's going to attack yeah. the game, like they they understand, you know, we've all seen. You, I think everyone underestimated exactly how determined and clever gamers were when we weren't in direct communication with each other all the time. But when have you seen the uh, uh, the half A press uh, Mario sixty four level completion? Um, no, I haven't actually. So it's a sub. I mean, Mario sixty four, like all Mario games, is people have been speed running it and doing all sorts of glitches or whatever. And one subgenre is beating Mario levels with the smallest number of inputs, basically, to the controller. Okay. Right. And so this one level that you can beat with a half a press, meaning you press the A button down and don't release it. <laughs> okay. I, I'll get to send you the video after. It will blow yeah, your mind. Thanks. Like so. That's that's how clever people are. Right. So I there was another. Uh, speaking of Breath of the Wild, someone did a Breath of the Wild video. It was hilarious where they wanted to beat Breath of the Wild without, without climbing. I believe without climbing. Okay. Yeah, without ever, without either without ever climbing or without ever jumping or both. I forget. One one thing that is so <laughs> fundamental. You're like, wow. How can you beat the game without doing that? Like, so I'm pretty sure you'll have no problem finding someone beating Ganon with a mop. 
<laughs> well, that my son, my son came to me and said, "Hey, look, this guy's beating Ganon with a mop," and I'm like, "Come on, that's got to be doctored. Surely that can't be real." But no, half if they can beat Mario at the 64 levels with a half A press and and play uh, Breath of the Wild to completion without either jumping or climbing or both. That's brilliant. It's no problem. Uh, that's brilliant. I love it. And so, if you're making a game like this, it would feel it would feel artificial and bad if they if they made you do the divine beast or whatever. It would mess up speed runners, and it would say like, why? Like if someone if someone <laughs> has the skill to beat Ganon with the mop, let them beat Ganon with the mop. Yeah, that's true. Oh, that is it is a be- that is a beautiful thing. I, I love that flexibility uh, that you can do it if you want to. But um, so I guess um, I want to run through some of the some of the interesting differences that uh, between Breath of the Wild and some of the previous games. We touched on some of them, but um, one of the interesting things is, I think, the perspective of Link. And it's a subtle thing, but it kind of struck me when I was going back playing uh, Twilight Princess. When you play Ocarina or Majora's Mask, and I'm pretty sure Wind Waker and Twilight Princess, you name yourself. So it says, hi, who are you? And you say, well, I'm, I'm John. Um, you know, of course, you know, the savvy amongst us would say, no, my name's Link. And then, you know, you know, you're Link and they're talking to Link, they're talking to Link. And anyhow, so during the game you're always addressed as you know like whatever name you enter so hi john hi whatever and uh, whereas in breath of the wild you're always just link so they don't try to reuse your name even though it's attached to your profile and they probably could but they chose not to which which i thought was an interesting uh interesting change yeah i mean there's two I mean, like there's two classes of people in the world people who played zelda games and always called their character link and people who never call the character Link. Yeah. So what class are you? When you were asked to type in the name for your character in the games that in the Zelda games that asked you to do that, do you type Link or do you type something that is not Link? Um, can I be honest? I actually I typed something that was not Link, and that was mainly because I forgot. And once I'd started, I couldn't change it. I mean, because like, it used to ask you in, in tons in tons of the games. I think does Ocarina ask you? Ocarina does. Majora yeah. does. Like in all those games, you always type something that wasn't Link. Uh, not all of them. No, when I went back to replay Ocarina for the sake of uh, for the sake of fun, I I did actually put type Link in. So it's the sort of thing that when I started out, I didn't. Uh, I chose not to. But as I learned more about the the game, the franchise, and everything, I I started calling myself Link when I remembered. And I was just yeah, I, I forgot and slipped up. So now it's I'm John in in Twilight Princess. But yes, yeah, so some people like the fun of calling themselves like Butthead or something and seeing all the text dialogue <laughs> say say yeah. Butthead or whatever you know or my butt so, you know whatever like. Surely not. But I'm I always call I always call the character Link because when I'm playing the game I'm taking it very seriously and I want to be referred to by the name. It's like that's Link on the screen, so every interaction I have with other people better say Link. So I always call myself Link, and so I'm perfectly fine not entering the name. Um, cool. It's I just I thought it was an interesting thing because I I was thinking about why they chose to do that, and all of the spoken audio in Breath of the Wild refers to Link. So it, it's like you know, so when Zelda's speaking to us, like Link, Link, wake up, and all that. It's like, well, well, obviously, otherwise, I'd have to have something like you know, Siri trying to terribly pronounce, you know, whatever, you know, your name, if it was in fact Butthead, or <laughs> would uh, potentially spoil the moment, but never mind. Well, that, that's one of the big things about Breath of the Wild is the first game with voice acting in it, first Zelda game with voice acting in it. Even though it's not pervasive, it's only in the cutscenes and a few other places, and then there's tons of traditional, uh, you know, Zelda text everywhere else. But sure, uh, that could have been a very jarring choice, but I think it worked out fine because we are in a world where there's, Tons of games that have, uh, you know, acting and dialogue in the cutscenes, but not in the rest of the game because it's just not economical to have it for the entire game. So it worked out fine. 
Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was really beautiful. I thought it, it added a touch of authenticity to it. That previously it was all just you know you imagining them in your in your head because there there were there were a few. I'm trying to remember. There were a handful of um, spoken audio clips in the previous games, but it was hardly any. And certainly Breath of the Wild, even though it was during cutscenes, there were a lot more cutscenes with that uh, with that acting. And it was. Uh, I thought it was. Yeah, it was a very very nice touch. I thought so. That worked out well. Alrighty, so there's that. Um, right, um, weapons. Got to talk about weapons and the fact that they keep breaking. And that's... Uh, hmm. So I thought about it in the previous games and if you had the wooden sword or a wooden shield, sure enough, yes, they would burn if you went into Goron City or Death Mountain or wherever else that uh, it got rather warm. And uh, as is the case in Twilight Princess, Ocarina of Time, uh, whereas in uh, and and in Breath of the Wild, that's the case as well. But beyond that, um, if you use a sword, you know, if you you pick up a, a broadsword, not a rusty one, but you know, a decent one, or you get the rusty broadsword fixed and blah blah blah, you know, you, you're only going to be able to whack the grass about a dozen times or two dozen times, and it's going to fall apart, and you're going to be like, oh, it broke, great, now I've got to go find another one, which is a completely different um, situation to the, all the previous games, as far as I know. Yeah, if I I don't I didn't read I do kind of uh, not full media blackout, but I try to avoid spoilers for new Zelda games for the most part. I'll watch the official trailers, but I don't read every little thing about them because I don't want to know. Right? But if I so you had told me beforehand, the new Zelda game is going to have destructible weapons and and showed me roughly how long they're going to last. I would have said, oh no, this is going to be terrible. And when I started playing the game, I was like, mm, is this going to be annoying? But it didn't take me long to. A, get used to it, and then B, eventually realize the brilliance of it, which I would never have predicted. I would have been like, well, maybe this is a thing that I'll tolerate and they'll learn from this terrible mistake. But it's a brilliant gameplay choice uh, because what what happens in traditional Zelda games, uh, there's such a linear power progression where you get items that have a specific utility, and of course you get the Master Sword eventually, and maybe you know there's some empowering of the Master Sword, and like... You never go back to the weaker weapons unless they're, you know, if you didn't have a good weapon, you use the lesser weapon. But once you have the good weapon, you don't use the lesser one unless that has some specific utility for it to solve a puzzle or something, right? Or there's some enemy that is particularly vulnerable to it or whatever. Um, but in, a, in an open world game, that would make it pretty boring because you would just pursue better weapons and eventually you'd get the best weapons of each type uh, and then you would not be interested in loot anymore, essentially. Like, you you would be done with that whole aspect of the game, and that's a big part of the game. You can't have that in an open-world game. The stuff you find always has to have has to be interesting and have some utility. Uh, and also, in a game, in a game that you might play for a very long time because it's very open and, and casual and just you can go at your own pace, you would get bored swinging the same sword over and over again, even if it's the Master Sword. So in order to make you play with different weapons that you might not otherwise play with and always find value in things that in drops basically in loot that you get make everything temporary like yes you have items and they may be good and you may be excited to have them but they will wear out if you use them if you don't use them it's pointless for you to have them and if you do use them they'll wear out so you're always on the lookout for another item even if it's a duplicate of an item you have you will drop the damaged one and pick up the shiny new one and feel haha i feel that i have a i value this item because it's a fresh item of whatever type right uh and it just 
I would not have used the variety of weapons that I use, and I also would not have discovered like enemies' particular vulnerability to shock weapons or just to cold weapons or whatever. Like, I probably wouldn't have used those unless I was having particular trouble with them. But I use them because they're in the rotation, and there is a little bit of min-maxing and looking at the stats and the various you know attributes that the weapons have that make you mix it up a little bit. But the fact that every weapon, with the exception of the Master Sword, plus minus some caveats there, is temporary is such a brilliant move. And I think it was, you know, obviously you can't have the Master Sword be temporary because that wouldn't make any sense. The way that Master Sword like is empowered and loses its power and you have to use another item is a great way to let you have your cake and eat it too with the Master Sword because it's a, it's a yeah. big achievement to get the Master Sword. It's also a big achievement in the DLC to power it up to max power, which I did, and it feels good to do that. But you can't use the Master Sword the entire game because it wears out and because it's not the we- best weapon for all situations. But you do feel lucky to have the Master Sword, which you know will never break, but does have to take breaks. Um, and I, I give that system a big thumbs up, and it was brilliant and brave for them to do it. And I think for the most part, everybody who played the game probably went in with reservations and was initially annoyed with the system, but was won over by it. And just I didn't see anyone saying, I played Breath of the Wild all the way through, and from beginning to end, I hated destructible items. I think most people have either say they're neutral on it or they came around to appreciate it. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm in that latter camp. I, I initially, and I guess it's uh, what you're used to, and and you're used to the fact that you you get a sword and you can use it a bazillion times, cut the grass a bazillion times, and you know magically uh, your sword never you know gets dull or never breaks. I mean, this is actually far more you know realistic and uh, and authentic, I guess. And the I, I like that point you made about it forces you to try different weapons, and you realize that. The Master Sword is lovely. If you don't charge it up, it's got, I think it's 30 hit points or whatever, and uh, I think you charge up, it's double that. Um, when you're around Guardians, it's double that. Uh, and, you know, all, there are plenty of other weapons that are far more powerful than that. And um, I, I honestly, yeah, I, I started out not liking it at all, and then within only a few hours of playing, I actually appreciated that choice because you have all these extra spots to hold, all these different kinds of weapons, so you can actually develop your own your own favorites and... Uh, and uh, and speaking of, I I do love me a good um, savage Lionel Crusher. Um, that's yeah. I realize that you can't use your shield at the same time, but you know when you can when you can clobber someone for like 104 or 106 damage. Yeah, that's that's kind of nice. I like that. Yeah, it's like if you, you go for the, the the items have lots of variety, like the the two handed items that you can slowly spin. Right, you don't have the shield with it, but you can grab it with two hands and spin, 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 and you know, like that's an entirely different technique of attacking than the quick stabby jab type things. Breath of the Wild has obviously the best weapon arsenal of any Zelda game. The combat system itself is I feel like not as sophisticated or as good as Twilight Princess, but I still think has the best combat engine. But Twilight Princess, honestly, was probably an overcomplicated uh, engine. I mean, I liked it because I played so many Zelda games and I'm I'm ready to step up to that level of having all these special moves and all these items or whatever. Uh, but Breath of the Wild, has I think, has more variety. Uh, and because of the physics gameplay, more like ways to kill things with things that are strictly not actually weapons. Yeah, uh, sure. That Breath of the Wild is probably more more fun combat system. Twilight Princess's combat system, especially if you level it up all the way, is more technical. But honestly, you don't actually need all of those combat techniques in Twilight Princess to beat any enemies. It's just fun to do, like fun to show off hitting them with different things. Like the, the flurry rush and all those kind of quick time events is an attempt yeah. to add some flair to the Breath of the Wild combat system. But similarly, you don't need those flourishes to beat any enemies. You can 
you could do it the old-fashioned boring way. It's just fun to learn. Even Lionel's, you don't you don't need to flare rush on Lionel. You just need to learn a few dodges and a few. You know, by by the time you've leveled up Lionel's, you know, going Lionel hunting, it's still a challenge. But there are techniques with other items that you have that can make it far less technically challenging than it, than it was in the beginning, which is good. I like that. Like this is the delicate balance of an open world game. Of I want to, I don't want to feel like I'm unfairly being destroyed by things that are over leveled for me. But I, you know, but I, I also don't want every enemy in the game to become so easy that it's boring. Yeah. But I do want to feel like as I progress, I do get more powerful. So I love the idea that like I spent, you know, towards the, the back half of the game, I, I remember going Lionel hunting and guardian hunting. Once I realized I had like no longer to have to flee in fear every single time I saw a guardian, I was getting to the point where I could face one. And so the, all these areas of the map that I had been afraid to even go near, I'm like, I'm just, I'm going into, before I even went into Hyrule Castle, I'm like, I'm storming Hyrule Castle and I'm going to take out some guardians and I'm going to harvest their juicy little bits, which I needed for, you know, items and everything like that. And it was just such a great adventure. I'd waited the entire game to be, to be powerful enough to do that. And it wasn't easy. It was still hard. It was just on that edge. And even now that I'm like, max level max everything guardians still face some danger and some challenge and i still feel good beating up on them after so much of the game of them beating up on me and that's a very delicate balance to get because you don't want to make them too easy but you don't want them to be too hard either you want to you want to reward the player but keep it rewarding the whole way yeah i uh, yeah i i absolutely i feel where you're coming from with the with the guardians i um the the walking guardians in particular um once i sort of uh, I, I didn't rip the technique off of anybody else, but the technique that I, I sort of use is I'll, I'll run up to them and I'll just chop their legs off one by one. And uh, at the end of it, it's very satisfying because you see that and you say, yeah, you know, come on, you're going to walk after me now? You can't, well, you don't have any legs. Oh, that's okay. Well, that's a shame. But anyhow, um, yes, uh, revenge on guardians. Yes, uh, yes, they are annoying. But, um, and the flying guardians too really are annoying. And, and so far as the Lionels go, I it depends on... If I, because I, I do sometimes struggle to do the flurry, the flurry rush. I, I have um, pulled it off from time to time, but if I'm feeling really lazy with a Lionel, then I'll just stock up on bomb arrows and you know Ravali's Gale, and then just uh, basically blow it to smithereens, which you know is an odd kind of satisfying, but still it's uh, less technically challenging, I suppose. That's another uh, great uh, combat system. It's not really a combat system; it's like gameplay system that they made sure that for every enemy that's difficult to defeat, like you have many options, and you can trade. Like if, if you are very good with reaction time and you know good at memorizing move sets or whatever, you can beat a Lionel with just your combat skill and some meager weapons. But if that's not your cup of tea the game gives you other avenues. You can scrimp and save and go buy guardian arrows and you can shoot a Lionel with that and they just die instantly and disappear. They're very expensive, those arrows. And I think you don't get loot drops because they like disappear instead of dropping all their stuff. But if your problem is that an area is being guarded by a Lionel or guarded by a guardian, same thing, you don't have to be super good at combat and you don't even need to be leveled enough to beat them. You just need, if you if you decide I'm going to grind out this thing and save up enough little parts and pieces to get some guardian hours, and then I can just one-shot guardians, right? So you have yeah. so many different techniques. If you are, if, if you know, hand-eye coordination and combat is not your thing, other avenues are open to you. It doesn't doesn't force you, like everyone who plays this game has to become an expert at, at beating Lionels with just their wits. It's not true. 
Yeah, it's a good point, actually, because I'm thinking back to Ocarina of Time, for example, when when Ganon's coming at you, jumping in and out of the mirrors, and uh, and so on, he throws a, um, a a bolt of energy at you. If you, the only way you can actually defeat him is to actually swing the sword, the mask sword, at the right moment to deflect that back um, at Ganon. That's the only way of doing it, um, which is not the case in like like you just pointed out in, in in Breath of the Wild, which is really good. Yeah, or even like the Ocarina of Time's final boss battle, which is great, the different phases, but like mm. you just need to be good enough to do it. Like, again, it's, it's you know, it's like adding good boss battles, building on techniques you've done elsewhere. So the Forest Temple, you learned about batting things back. You will be batting things back again and in the final battle as well. Then he'll turn into a big monster and you'll be shooting arrows like you. But there's no there's no alternate way to do that. You couldn't say, well, if you had spent more time grinding out this thing, you could have got this special item that you can shoot him and skip that phase. Nope, no skipping it. You just got to do the exact thing they wanted you to do there. And that's mostly true of the boss battle, like the final Ganon battle here, although you have other options about how to accomplish it. But the, in the open world, they don't, they can't assume you have any particular item and they, and they also can't assume that you have any particular fighting skill. But there's so many different ways to kill things. So many different options. You know, you mentioned bomb arrows. You could roll a big cart down a hill on them with a bomb inside it you could like smash them into a rock you can get other enemies to fight each other like the options people are still making videos of like novel ways to kill things and and even just to beat shrines and everything like that it's just Mm. it's a phenomenal use of the open world to make the gameplay more accessible no matter how you decide you want to play yeah it's like how would you like to kill this thing today which is really yeah refreshing um, I also just I also love the fact you can throw things too. So if you've got a weapon that is nearly about to break, you, sometimes you'll do more damage if you actually throw it at the enemy. Yeah, I think it's a, like two or three nice. X actually. It's it's not easy to aim, but you if you get rewarded. Like this, the, the beautiful thing about Breath of the Wild, it's so good at knowing what things you might do that you should be rewarded for. So uh, beating difficult enemies drops tons of loot. Lionels drop tons of stuff. It's not just like yeah. slightly more rewarding than than yeah, beating a low-level enemy. It is hugely more rewarding, way out of proportion to how much harder it is than to do it, especially as you get higher. Throwing an item, it's hard to do that accurately. So the, the, it doesn't just do the same damage it would do if you hit it. It does like two or three times the damage because if you pull it off, you feel cool. You should be rewarded with damage that is all out of proportion to, like, why does the sword when you throw it do two or three more times damage? It doesn't make any sense. It makes sense because it's cooler. Like, you know, that's... And it's reflected <laughs> in the true. gameplay design of, like, hiding the rocks and finding an interesting place. If you see someplace that looks like it might be cool to get to and you go up there and get there, you'll be rewarded for getting there because they knew you would see that place and think it would be a cool place to get to. So there'll be a rock or a little, you know, uh, some other rupee or treasure chest or some other cool thing or a, just a cool view you can have or something. It's just... Those 300 people, every single one of them every night must have been thinking, where might someone want to go because they think it's cool and how can I reward them for getting there? Exactly. And the level of detail that they put into that, um, it, it's not all—it's not every single mountaintop, but practically every mountaintop, like the hard to get to ones, or, there's something there, like you say. And um, it's, yeah, I just the attention to detail still blows me away. Yeah, I was, I was doing that like halfway through the game halfway through the number of hours i played the game i was still doing things purely to do them yeah not because i thought there would be a reward there like it never like flips around of like oh i can tell that they're going to put a reward there therefore let me do this thing like a great example is probably almost towards the end of the game when i was a I could have gone and began, but I'm like, let me just get level up a little bit more. So like I was I was at the level where I was contemplating my run again because I'm like, I'm ready to beat this game. I've done all the beasts. I've done all the shrines I think I want to do. I've done all the memories. Uh, and it was on like my 
penultimate exploratory run of the castle, and I climbed to the very top of the castle because I thought it was a cool thing to do. And I'm like, duh, of course there's a Korok up there. But I, it totally not occurred to me until it was, I was on top of it that there's a Korok on top. I was climbing to the top of the castle because it seemed like a cool thing to do. And that's practically the end of the, the main story of the game where I'd done almost everything. It was like a hundred and something hours into the game. I was still doing things just because it seemed really cool to be able to get to the top of the castle. And then when I get up there like, oh, dummy, of course it's a Korok. I wasn't, I wasn't in Korok hunting mode. It's just like, it, it was so, so great. And the thing is, the main reward for me being up there was getting to look around at the top of the castle. It wasn't even the Korok. Mm, that's it. And, and uh, similar story at the top of um, Zora's Domain as well. If you go right to the very top of that, um, the sort of like fan head sort of statue, mm-hmm. top of the statue. Yeah, same kind of thing. And it's just, uh, yeah, I love it. So um, a few more few more things to talk about, though. The, the, the weapons breaking we talked about, but uh, shields also break. And the thing that I found interesting is that um, even the, uh, the Hylian shield will break. Uh, unlike the Master Sword that won't, it'll just you know say, nope, so i got to recharge for 10 minutes or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, the shields will break. And um, and I thought initially that was a bit strange. And then when I started to get more into shield surfing, <laughs> which is which is a rather neat trick, um, so uh, that that's a really good way to go through shields in a hurry. Yeah, if I had to tweak any of the destructibility, I would either put in a non-destructible but recharge type shield or and I know they made the the, high, the good shield like the Zelda shield. I know it has huge durability, but I did find myself not using that shield because I wanted to preserve it because I always wanted to have a set of the official like Link equipment, yeah. Master Sword, yeah. Hylian Shield, like the Ocarina of Time set. And it's because I didn't want to wear out the Hylian Shield because they're hard to get. I didn't have that many of them. And so I find myself not using it that much and I think it's worth having either an indestructible shield that just recharges or one that has a hundred times the durability of even this one. Like that you wouldn't have to worry about it, that you'd need to get maybe two or three of these shields the whole game and you'd be set. Uh, because I feel like a shield is not like using different kinds of shields doesn't have as big a gameplay difference, at least the, the shields they provided in the game. Their shield is a shield for the most part. They didn't have the, even the mirror shield only adds a little bit of variety for the most part. It's just a shield and, it's not an offensive weapon, and there's not going to be that many big differences between them. So don't make me rotate shields. Just let me, you know, use one or two or three different kinds of shields and maybe have them have different variety, like shields that are better against certain other things. Uh, but, yeah, the shield shield breaking, particularly the quote-unquote good shield, is the, the one part of the destruction system that niggled with me even to the end. Yeah. Yeah, I do uh, I do find that I, I tend to never swap shields, or very rarely swap shields. The only exception is if I'm going into a shrine where there are the Guardian Scouts and uh, you can swap to a, a Guardian Shield that then, you know, reflects their energy pulse back at them again, which is the, uh, I don't know, lazy way, smart way, or whatever, of uh, of defeating them, I suppose. Yeah, but, I, I uh, like the shields, the shields exploding in combat because that's an exciting moment, like when you're fighting with something and one of your weapon or your shield gets destroyed and you're either, you know, defenseless or you you're, don't have a weapon anymore. That That's always a fun moment. Yeah, well, the funny moments when you're in a battle, it breaks, and then you go and, 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 and press the thing to go and swipe at them, and you just get the, uh-huh, uh-huh, oh, no, oh, that's right, I don't have a weapon. Oops, hang on. Yeah. <sighs> I love that little sound effect, too. For some reason, it makes me smile, but anyhow. Um, all right, cool. So, um, so we talked a little bit about the, um, the, the – so one of the other interesting things is the Sheikah Slate, which is, um, which is an interesting part of it. It's sort of a – Geez, it's almost like a smartphone um, kind of an idea, which I thought was because it's uh, it's a camera. It's got um, 
I'm trying to think. There's really not. It's a Nintendo Switch in the game. Yeah, so that's what it is. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it like that. That's a good point. It is too. So because it's you've got Magnesis and um, geez, what are they? So you've got Magnesis, Cryonis, um, Stasis, which is the time for freezing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the camera. There's an amiibo one for if you've got the amiibos and uh, the two remote bombs rolling and non-rolling. Actually, the bombs is an interesting one because I was having played all the previous, well, all the bonds I've previously played, you know, you have to go and get the right bomb bag. Uh, it's got a limit of how many bombs you can have in it. And once you've used them, you've used them. And sometimes the only way is to go and buy more or go and, you know, pick a live bomb flower, I guess. But um, whereas these, it's like I was stoked as, for, as soon as they got activated. I'm like, oh, all I got to do is wait for it to recharge, and I've got infinite bombs. I can blow up whenever I want, whenever I want, never run out. That's fantastic. Yeah, part, having played all the previous games, that you know, being used to having bomb scarcity and then suddenly having infinite bombs, yeah, is probably mostly significant to people who played the earlier games, and I'm one of those people. So once I got that. And to talking about different ways of killing things in the beginning, almost any time I was faced with a difficult enemy, I'd be like, I have infinite bombs. That was like, that was the crutch I went to. Like, I don't have enough items to defeat you and I don't have enough hearts, but I do have infinite bombs and they do incredible amounts of damage. And obviously you have to be careful because you blow yourself up. Right. But it was like, yeah, it was like, I, I have weapons that break that don't do a lot of damage and I don't have many of them, but bombs come forever and they do huge amounts of damage. So I, Spent so long, A, blowing myself up, and B, figuring out how to carefully trail bombs behind me and destroy tons and tons of enemies with bombs, which is a weird combat technique that someone who isn't used to bomb scarcity would probably never do. And it's probably not the best technique. Like, I probably should have learned to use weapons better or whatever because you blow yourself up less often. But yeah. it's, it's what I did. Very early in the game, I was bombing everything. Yeah. Oh, totally. I, I, same here. And, and I... um. Uh, it's also um, great when you uh, come across an area where there's a, a group of um, usually Bokoblins or something and there's some dynamite barrels down there and you're like, oh, I can just throw a bomb in that and um, mm-hmm. then <laughs> there they all go. And make sure you're not pieces. too close when you do it. Yes, it's all, yeah. it's a delicate yeah, balance. That too. Uh, that too. But yeah, uh, it's, it, is, it is very much, I was very giddy when I when I could realize that I could just, I would never run out of bombs. So that was fantastic. Um, but anyway, so yeah, that Sheikah Slate sort of becomes the um, the the pivotal uh, go-to thing in the game because it's got because you can take photos of everything and then you can use that to track them on the map and so you take a photo of this if you're going to go farming for i don't know um hightail lizards or whatever then you know that's that's fantastic and i thought about why they almost had to do something like that is because there are so much variety of so many different creatures and some of them are restricted to different parts of the map if you were going to try and find them if you didn't have some kind of functionality like that I, you might even give up in frustration because it's i mean it makes it makes it achievable, I think, rather than frustrating. Yeah, we also have the magic of YouTube and the internet to help you find things too. But yeah, there's like they give you lots of aids to to make sure that the game is accessible to someone who doesn't obsessively watch YouTube videos about how to do things or whatever. That they, that there are things in the game that will guide you towards not just completion of the main quest, but completion of side quests. Even just the tracking of all your side quests in a giant menu. Right, like that's mm. a system that I don't recall in any earlier Zelda game. That lets you know no. here are all the things that are in flight, and here is the instructions that were about them. And you can sort of go through the, the. You know, I didn't pay much attention to that system until I'd essentially finished the game and wanted to see what I had left to do. I was like, oh look, it's all nice and organized for me in a big menu here. See, I thought that was brilliant, and I think that that was also partly. Well, my, my supposition is that that was driven by the fact that the Switch is far more designed to be. Um, you know, pick up, put down, pick up, put down. 
uh, short bursts of gameplay. And I mean, I say that sort of sort of rolling my eyes at myself there because I'm trying to think just how often I actually did do that because generally if I'm going to sit down and play Zelda... Short bursts of three hours. Yeah, yeah three hours short bursts today. Um, yeah, it's exactly it's like that. But um, but I thought that was great because there are so many side quests and so many... Okay, everything's a side quest, but still. Uh, the, the reality is that there's so much to keep track of then if you are in and out of the game for whatever reason, then that becomes absolutely invaluable. And uh, I thought that was brilliant. So I'm really glad they did that. So one of the other things that's interesting is the we, we talked a little bit about the um the not the guardians because uh, I guess in the storyline the guardians were originally controlled by you know hundred years ago they were trying to fight calamity Ganon and uh, Ganon basically sort of you know took over all the divine beasts and all the guardians and turned them against everybody and the poor champions well they didn't make it so the four champions and the four divine beasts I, I really enjoyed doing the divine beasts because it was kind of like uh it was a far more involved uh, more complicated. Uh, well, it's, it was like, it was like a dungeon essentially, but, um, it was not like a shrine, like, like a shrine that that's, it, it's one of those interesting things, isn't it? Cause it's, the shrines can just be a blessing where you just, you, you get through a whole bunch of challenges to get to the shrine and you just walk in and say, yep, nothing to do, grab your loot and, uh, and your, uh, um, you know, token at the end and you're all good. Uh, whereas other ones were almost as long, not, not quite, but you know, more involved to the point, which is almost like a, one of the divine beasts. So, it's like the divine beasts were kind of like the um, the dungeons of, of Breath of the Wild to a, to an extent, I suppose. Yeah, this is the one aspect of Breath of the Wild that keeps it from being a, my clear number one, and the reason it's battling with Twilight Princess uh, and and in my mind and even Ocarina a little bit is that like Breath of the Wild did so many great things. We've talked about them. The open world is is a great expansion, uh, an obvious follow-on in the face of new technology of a game where you want to explore and everything. But uh, And, you know, there's so many aspects of the traditional Zelda that are left behind, like the linear progression, the item-based progression, the, you know, the, the story that knows exactly what you're going to have at each point and stuff like that. Uh, and, and you know, it, it set those aside and replaced them with things that we think are either just as good or better, you know, the, the fun open-world gameplay and the you know, the flexibility of different kinds of combat and all, you know, we just talked about them, but there's one aspect of the old Zelda series that they didn't bring forward. And they also didn't, I feel like replace with something that was equal or better. And that is the idea of a Zelda dungeon, a proper Zelda dungeon, like a big complicated setting with a multi-step puzzle that you work your way through with unique enemies and challenges, right? You know, Twilight Princess has a ton of these, you know, they all do. Wind Waker has a bunch, like it's Zelda dungeon and Breath of the Wild simply does not have any Zelda dungeons. Shrines are definitely not dungeons. They are a cool thing, which is new, you know, this sort of bite-sized fun little thing with where you can have all sorts of different adventures and gameplay things, but generally aesthetically and enemy wise and theme wise, they're very samey, right? They're, a shrine is a shrine is a shrine. There are varieties within them and different kind of enemies, but they're it's all kind of shrine themed. Um, and the beasts, while they are interesting, all the beasts are basically they're all they're all beasts, right? So theme wise, sort of aesthetically, and what you can expect from them, you're climbing around inside and outside beasts. So there is a sameness to all of them, and none of them are as complicated as any major dungeon in any. 3d zelda game right they're just not they're they're not as big they don't have as much things to do they're not as complicated the puzzles aren't as hard there are no proper dungeons except for maybe hyrule castle but i wouldn't even count that in breath of the wild and there is no reason that there couldn't be dungeons like that in breath of the wild except for time and budget so i don't 
fault the game for it because I feel like if you have to choose between putting in a bunch of Twilight Princess sized dungeons or making the masterful open world game as big as you have do the open world thing because it is a thing that has not been seen before but what I sincerely hope for follow-up games is they keep everything that's good about Breath of the Wild but you know instead of Divine Beasts have three or four very different from each other proper dungeons because it's not like they don't fit it's not like they couldn't do it with the gameplay scaling or whatever they'd be exactly like divine beasts in terms of you can go to them whenever you want and they don't have to be in any particular order and you have all the items all that stuff but make them big unique interesting settings with complicated puzzles and enemies and and bosses and mini bosses how put in keys like you know do do the whole nine yards like because there are so many places in twilight princess that just evoke so many memories and feelings of being in that place and figuring out what's going on and conquering it, whether it's like the rainy Hyrule castle with all the people, the archers shooting at me or the, the snowy mountaintop with the weird snow people and the, the scary lady. And like, there's just the, or, or the, the monkeys in the trees and everything like there is no equivalent of that in breath of the wild. Like the whole, the whole world of it is, is, you know, there are so many things in breath of the wild that aren't in any other game. Right. But if breath of the wild had, Twilight Princess caliber dungeons instead of the very samey beasts and shrines, it would be my number one Zelda game of all time easily. As it stands, it's like there is no number one because Twilight Princess is the best of the the Ocarina style games, and this is the first and best of a, a new style game. And I honestly, I wouldn't want to go back to a Twilight Princess style game a- after this, but I I miss the dungeons. I don't know if you do you feel that way as well. Uh, I think uh, it's it's interesting the way you characterize it. I. I feel like what I what I missed in the Divine Beasts that was present in Twilight Princess in particular is that when you go and do a dungeon in Twilight Princess, most of the dungeons you'll pick up something along the way that helps you to finish the dungeon and it's a new and very useful item that you can use somewhere else. Like things like the spinner, for example. That's that's one example. Then uh, the Dominion Rod um, for taking over control of the statues, for example, which is also... Um, which is, um, I think is, I thought was really, really cool. That was, I think it was Temple of Time. Uh, and you know, that that's doesn't happen in the divine beasts, the divine beasts, you, you go through the divine beast and at the end, then, uh, you'll get one of the powers of the, of the champions, whatever that, that power might be. And that power will recharge. And that's, that's handy to have, but you get that as a reward at the end. It's not something that, that you're given to help you get through the dungeon. So, it, the thing that I, I think was appealing about the dungeon style, particularly in in, uh, in uh, Twilight Princess, was the fact that you would pick up something new and different in most of the dungeons that you could not only use to help you finish that dungeon or needed to use to finish the dungeon, but you could then use it later in the game. And it was generally something very, very cool and very, very useful. And that just that, that doesn't happen as far as like, I'm just trying to think if it ever happens in Breath of the Wild. And I can't think of a time when it does. Yeah, it doesn't really fit with the open world thing, but I think the spinners are a good example. You can do, like, the things that make a dungeon uh, fun to do, a proper Zelda dungeon fun to do, doesn't require you to be able to take those items out with you. So spinners, for example, it could be, it could have been that the spinners were just, like, only existed in that dungeon and were just a feature of the dungeon. Like, you can add gameplay mechanics that you learn as part of doing a dungeon. Like, they could be part of the setting, because if the setting is some future place or some place with gears or, like, whatever, like, you can you can incorporate new gameplay mechanics into the setting, and you don't have to 
build the whole game around them and make it linear because like oh well, once they have this power like they need you need to have done this dungeon before that dungeon or it'll make this part of the game boring you can keep that stuff in the dungeon i think skyward sword this is some some respects put gameplay mechanics in the dungeons that were just about the dungeons so it feels like you are mastering a setting and mastering a set of enemies and eventually beating mini bosses and a boss in such a way that it doesn't break the outside open world of the game like that it's not still make you feel like you are you're experiencing a new thing and don't make it feel like oh i got this cool sword but now i can't take it out of the dungeon like you have to find a way to make it feel like the thing you're doing is integral to the setting so it doesn't feel like you are being constrained from taking away a reward but it does feel like you've done a new thing and maybe learned a new technique so that next time you see that mechanic you will know how to do it and i suppose you can also add items that you can't get elsewhere or it could just be like the typical leveling system where if you do a harder uh, if you beat a harder enemy if you beat a lionel you get better drops right and so if you were able to beat the boss you get good drops from that or whatever like i feel like there's nothing about a proper zelda dungeon that is incompatible with the open world like everything else it would just have to be tweaked to work with it i think it's mainly about making making them big and complicated with cool puzzles and making each of them distinct i think like breath of the wild the fact that the beasts are the closest you get to dungeons and they're all beasts yeah just just not the variety you get of the uh, even just in the simple game on n64 like ocarina of time the water temple is so different from the the fire temple the shadow temple like they're 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 so distinct in my mind or fighting the witches or sneaking into the the desert you know stronghold like so distinct with so little graphics and so little size whereas the beasts just all blend into one thing even the bosses and the beasts they just mostly blend you know yeah yeah so that is that is the one biggest weakness of, of breath of the wild as far as i'm concerned yeah, no, I think it's a valid point, and they are very samey. They've got that same kind of um, uh, layouts, structure, and everything, and it's it is a bit samey in the end. And I, one of the things in, in Twilight um, Princess, and I guess Ocarina, I, I love the whole time travel thing too, which is really cool. Um, so you know, in Twilight Princess, when you um, essentially you, you know go through that that doorway, and then you go back in time into the Temple of Time, back at when it was actually you know not not a ruin. Uh, to finish that dungeon, it's got a completely different feel, like you say, to you know something like the Water Temple, and uh, it's and yeah, the Divine Beasts do look very similar, and they do have similar mechanics. And um, in any case, yeah, it's I, I think that in future, uh, yeah, hopefully in future, they do something a little bit more complicated, either either more and varied uh, Divine Beasts or something like it, um, or just you know bring back the dungeons like they were to an extent yeah i mean that, again they may be asking for like oh well this took 300 people why don't you use 900 people like at a certain point like i, I think they made the right trade-offs like this is the right trade-offs sure. to make for your first open world game put it all into the open world and just get as much of the dungeon stuff as you can and hyrule castle is obviously i think the best quote-unquote dungeon because it is mm. it doesn't feel like like the shrines and the beasts it doesn't feel like you have left the game world and enter a constrained problem space the constrained problem you literally go down an elevator for the shrines it's like forget about the world now you're in a shrine like it is just like a doorway a portal like old style like leave that world behind and go into a new place and the beasts there isn't the approach to the beast and getting on them but basically once you're on the beast it's like well there is background and there's the beast very constrained whereas hyrule castle is a setting a nat- natural setting that is basically like an open world dungeon because it is a place and you're exploring it and you may have a goal of a place you're trying to get to and different places you can go you know it's not a proper zelda dungeon where there are like puzzles and blocks moving and bouncing light off things like you know that's i don't find that anachronistic i find that fun i want i want to do that i want to figure out a place and progress through it it, with those type of artificial constraints 
and I think Hyrule Castle doesn't have those kind of puzzles, but it is the closest to feeling like a dungeon because it feels like a big actual place. It just doesn't have any of the, the puzzle aspects to it. It just has enemies. So I think it's totally possible to have an open world game like Breath of the Wild with more things like Hyrule Castle and to replace all the shrines and the Divine Beasts with like three or four traditional Zelda dungeons that have all the traditional aspects of them. Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess hopefully we'll, we'll probably find out in the next, uh, hopefully not too much longer, maybe another year or so uh, until they bring out um, the, the sequel to it. But uh, so fingers crossed. Um, there are a couple of little things I want to mention um, that, that I thought was uh, interesting is uh, for cooking food, uh, for example. I don't recall any other Zelda games where you could cook food. Um, I, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong about that. I because uh, I thought that was <laughs> there's probably some 2D game where you could do some kind of cooking thing, but I didn't play most of those, so I couldn't tell you. But this is obviously the 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 first game where that was such a major mechanic. Yeah, I I loved it. I, initially, I started out interestingly. I started out not cooking the food. I just just go and like walk around, see a you know a mushroom, grab that, see an apple, grab that, you know, and I just you know that was it. Uh, but as I realized, when you cook food, you increase how much recovery it can give you. And obviously, you know, not including things like baking the monster cake and that, that side quest and so on. You know, apart from those, um, ultimately, I just, I, I learned that um, when I'm going into a, 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 a battle with a boss, like, or like a Lionel or a mini boss like a Lionel, uh, I'll always go and stock up on that beforehand just to make sure. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't really do too much in the way of recipes. I just say, well, you know, lots of meat, lots of Endura, whatever, or lots of hearty items. There's <laughs> a fun part of the food system that I feel like, you know, because food is a thing we're all familiar with. And so people bring their own, like, I don't know if it's a match for what they do in the real world, but it's like some people, like when they cook for themselves at home, like find two or three things they like and just keep making those. And other people are very adventurous and always want to find like a new recipe. And I, I see that in... in uh, in this game in Breath of the Wild as well because like some people will find one or two recipes that give them what they want. Oh, I found one that gives me lots of hearts and this one gives me stamina and like I'll just keep making those two things because it's got abundant ingredients. I can find them. I know where to find them. I'll just keep making those those same meals. And other people are just like I got to read every little blurry poster on a wall to find out some new recipe just because it's fun to cook new and interesting things even if they're not like even if I've already found basically the most the best meal in terms of effort to get the ingredients uh the ratio of that to like the power that you get people still just want to find new recipes so it's kind of an interesting uh rorschach test for people's attitude towards food yeah that's true uh, the interesting thing is i i i guess i if, if, if i were to say that i made the same thing over and over again it was really just you know grab a bunch of meat endure or health or hearty stuff and just throw it in and it's all good basically i yeah, because it, it was giving you what you wanted out of it gameplay-wise. Like, that's why I say it might not be the same thing in real life, because in real life you might be bored eating the same thing, but in the game you just want to, you know, to find something that gets the job done. Like, that's this is the other aspect of, you know, another major aspect they left behind. Uh, in every other Zelda game, you know, from Ocarina on, you had hearts, you got hit, you lost hearts, uh, and if you wanted to get hearts back, every time you defeat an enemy, for the most part, they dropped hearts, and you can just even just smash pots and cut grass and get hearts. That does not happen in Breath of the Wild. You cannot cut grass and get hearts. You cannot kill enemies and get hearts. If you lose hearts, nobody gives them back to you. The only way to get them back is to make yourself food. So it's, you know, it can be considered, oh, not a side quest, but like a mechanic that you don't have to engage in. But and if you're good enough, you don't have to. But it is an entirely different way to, you know, that like it, it 
doesn't force you, but it strongly encourages you to engage with the food system because that's how you get your health back and that's how you power yourself up for battles. And it works, you know, in terms of like you want to have a good meal to make yourself big and strong. It's like it's part of the preparation. When you're going into your Lionel battle, get all get make sure you have full hearts, make sure you have the extended hearts and whatever extended stamina if you're gonna climb up a you know, a big cliff or something like that. It it brilliantly just throws away decades of mechanics for an entirely different mechanic that might seem like it's super annoying, but serves all the the purposes they want for the game. Like they, they they want it to feel like it's new. They want you to feel like you're in danger. Like they want it to be an exciting to explore. Like you die more in Breath of the Wild than so many other games. Like other other games have like a sad music, dramatic death scene, and it would send you back to a distant checkpoint. Yeah, Breath of the Wild knows you're gonna die like crazy because you don't you don't regen hearts that's another popular thing in modern era you regen health by just hiding somewhere like first person shooters they don't flow out of pots and grass you can't there's no reason to mindlessly destroy the vegetation there's no reason to destroy all the pots in someone's house all staples of the zelda series that don't happen in this game it it just it works together so brilliantly like like if you had given me the game design brief for breath of the wild said here's all the stuff we're going to throw away from zelda and be like do you want to throw it all of that in the same game like maybe just pick one or two things and throw them away because it's going to be really hard to, to develop new systems that work as well as these tried and true ones and like nope we're throwing out all these systems at once and we're going to bring all new systems and trust me it will be fun and it's just it's a phenomenal amazing feat like game design like this should be entire phd dissertations on, on the breath of the wild alone so how you can make a new game in a franchise by discarding so much that was old before it and replacing it with all new systems and all work together and have basically everybody like it. Like, it's not like all the, you know, all my minor complaints. I don't, haven't seen a bad review of this game. Everyone has some minor complaint here or there, but mostly it's just like, mm. and brilliantly, like it, it basically just works. You play the game and it's fun. And I've seen some good, you know, analysis of figuring out why it's fun but for the most part you don't have to know everything about the intricacies of the design and the scaling all the stuff that's going on behind the scenes people just know it's fun to play i feel like i'm in the world i feel like i get into a groove and it all works and that's it's just that's the, the the best achievement of this game that it it wins over its harshest critics very quickly and everybody just accepts this is a fun game to play Absolutely. And and uh, so far as the whole hearts thing that you, you brought up in the whole chopping the grass, when I did actually start playing Breath of the Wild, I was actually quite disappointed. Uh, I was getting nothing from this grass. Uh, yeah, um, you're just used to it. You've been trained by decades yeah. to destroy grass and pots. That's it. And, uh, and so no more, um, you know, thoughtless wrecking of um, pots in people's households, which, you know, mm-hmm. always felt a bit odd, but uh, right. a bit, a bit, you know, unfair. Well, they, they incorporated it into the games where you get scolded about it and teased here, <laughs> just a home wrecker. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, they did keep one of the things though. The um, if you go to um, some of the uh, with heart recovery. So if you go to like the more of uh, of death uh, death mountain and um, the some of the the oh, the geez. hot springs. Um, yes, the hot springs. Thank you. Yep. Uh, you do, you will recover hearts there, and that's something that they also had in, uh, if I remember correctly, in Twilight, Twilight Princess. Princess. Yep. Yeah. So that so they didn't get rid of all of it. I don't think I'm trying to remember. Think back to Twilight Princess if they had inns that you could sleep in. I don't think they did. Um, but they in Breath of the Wild that so if you if you go to sleep there and you know you get the choice of a soft bed and a not soft bed or something mm-hmm. and mm-hmm, yeah that uh, but anyway so that'll recover a bunch of hearts as well and, and give you an extra if you pay extra for it I guess so so there's a couple of other little things there but it's yeah it, it was so completely different and um, 
and they took a lot of risks, uh, but it looks like they paid off. And and I guess one of the other things that I, I just I, I do want to talk about before we uh, before we think about wrapping it up is is the outfits. And it's like I was thinking back about all the different clothes and clothes outfits that you can have in Breath of the Wild, and then contrast that with what you used to be able to get with Twilight Princess and Ocarina of Time Majora's Mask. And in Twilight, I think as far as I can remember, there's there's three: there's the, the Zora armor, the magic armor, and the hero's armor, and and that's it. You get three spots and that's what you got. Uh, and Ocarina, there's the Kokiri. Um, then there's the, uh, the Zora tunic and the Goron tunic. And which are again, just color, was... color coded versions of each other. Like we didn't really have yeah. the graphics to make totally new sets. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And, and each of them will give you slightly, slightly different properties. Like you can breathe underwater mm-hmm. for, with the Zora one and, and, you know, and you can withstand and you have the iron the... boots and stuff like that. Like there are other accessories. True. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're right. That's true. I think we had hover boots at some point as well, which are cool. Yep. Um, yeah, but the reality is they they didn't just like step that up. They went they knocked that out of the park and they just had so many. I actually thought it might be fun just to do a quick list. <laughs> um so in Breath of the Wild we have uh the climbing gear, soldier's armor, Hylian outfit, snow quill outfit, desert vow outfit, the Gerudo girl outfit, um rubber armor, flame breaker, barbarian armor, radiant outfit, ancient armor, stealth outfit, the dark outfit, outfit of the wild, which obviously you get when you do all the 120 shrines. And then the special stuff like the champion's tunic. Uh, then you've got the thunder helm, sand boots, snow boots. I'm not going to count all the mon- monster masks that you can get from uh, um, Kipton, whatever his name is, not Kipton, um, you know, scary monster guy. Anyway, um, that comes out at night. Anyway, um, and then on the DLC, of course, we get that. You get a whole bunch of other ones like Salvage's outfit. You get the four divine helms if you've got each of those amiibos. Um, Midness helmet, which I thought was a, a nice touch. The Nintendo Switch shirt, which is a bit ridiculous, but hey, it's meant to be. Um, Tingle's outfit, Phantom Armor, Royal Guard outfit, and Zant's helmet, and Phantom Ganon armor. Unbelievable. I mean... Yeah, it's, it's scaled with the rest of the items, because if you were to list all the swords and all the shields and all the axes, there's tons of them too in different variants. Yeah, and, and the thing is, and it's a credit to the game, I think I have almost all of those things. And almost all of yeah. them I have almost all the way powered up which is a pain because of the resources you have to gather and how many times you have to go back to fairies. But towards the end of my playing of the game, I was like, what's left to do? I, I want to get all the armor and I want to power it all up to the maximum level. And like, that's a hell of a grind. But yeah, it's fun yeah. because they give you different qualities and they have different appearances. And plus they have that whole shirt dyeing shop where you can change the color of things, which adds even more twists mm. on top of this. Yeah, it, that's it's true. great. Like, and, and the, it's, I love that they're not just cosmetic. Like I will go through the trouble of putting on the climbing gear to climb faster yeah just because it's it's worth it gameplay wise right mm. oh yeah yeah so much faster and you keep the stamina so you don't don't drain your stamina anywhere near as quickly yeah we didn't talk about the stamina either but that's another fun thing of like you have to put some kind of you know you have this open world where you can climb basically everywhere yeah you have to put some kind of gating mechanic behind that otherwise it gets too open too quickly so it adds drama to exploration. Like, can I hold on to this cliff? I see a place and I want to get to it. There should be a challenge to getting there. The challenge shouldn't be how how bored do you get while holding one direction on, on your joystick for a long time. With the stamina meter, it becomes a challenge. You have to plan your climb. Uh, and it they, again, they balance that very well. And the, the, the trade-off between do you want hearts or do you want stamina of uh, different gameplay styles, it just adds so much constant tension and progression and, you know, sort of the feeling of leveling like it's just I feel like breath of the wild we talked about early on about the rpg elements probably the most rpg-ish of any zelda game just because every every aspect of gameplay there is a system and a progression behind even just the simple system of 
running and climbing, which is such a core mechanic, there is a progression behind that. There are stats, you know, it's not, it's not a bunch of numbers thrown in your face, although there are numbers on all the weapons and everything, but just seeing the meters and the number of hearts is a sort of simplified, friendly version of min-maxing stats that have a, a, a real-world reflection in the gameplay. So since you brought that up, um, yes, if you were playing the game from, from the, the start, which would you do first? Would you do hearts or would you do stamina? I, the decision I made when I first played through the game, I've only done one playthrough, but like, you know, the one very long playthrough, mm-hmm. I would make the same decision again. I was fairly evenly splitting between stamina and hearts because I feel like a, I know some people are big about the full stamina build, but, and this is, be, and this is a decision I made before I knew there was a statue that lets you change your trade-offs, right? Like that, yeah, that statue right. that lets you do all that. I didn't discover that until much, much later in the game. I was happy with a fairly even split because I did die a lot when I didn't have a lot of hearts. But, you know, and the stamina thing, like I could, I can plan around mediocre stamina and I can plan around mediocre hearts, but I find it very difficult to plan around barely any stamina and I find it very difficult to stay alive with barely any hearts. So I'm the sort of the middle road of a fairly even split alternating uh, between uh, stamina and hearts. Okay, so I... And, and and you fill and you fill the stamina meter before you fill the heart. So once you fill the stamina meter, then it's just all hearts after that. Yeah, that's true. I uh, and there's the, the you got three wheels, stamina wheels, and I think each each time you trade four pieces of shrine um, orbs. Well, I think they're called orbs. Uh, you'll yeah, you get. I think it's a is it a fifth of the of the stamina wheel or something like that. Um, it's something like that. But you but yeah, you do if you do that even split, you will run out of green wheel to add way before you run out of hearts. Yeah, that's true. So uh, I, I guess I, my rationale when I started out was I drove for hearts ahead of stamina. And the rationale was that if I come up against a really powerful enemy that was going to basically, you know, uh, kill me in one or two strikes um, before I had a chance to shove something in my mouth, then, you know, it was probably better to have more hearts to survive longer. And I did more battles and fighting than I did anything that required stamina like climbing. And if I did do climbing, I could easily pause the climb whenever I wanted to. Or if I was paragliding, I could pause anytime I wanted to and have something that had was a stamina food to, to replenish my stamina wheel. So that was sort of my rationale. So I sort of, once I was comfortable with how many hearts I had, then I pushed hard on the stamina and then I went back to hearts again. So Yeah, I, I was big um, on exploring. So I always wanted to, I was in a hurry. I wanted to just go up the big mm, cliff. I didn't want to go sure. around it. So I, that's why I needed that even split. Yeah. And it's nice that they give you, on both sides of that, they give you a workaround. So my workaround for not having enough hearts was uh, finding the food formulas that give you the yellow bonus hearts. Uh, okay. So just like you were taking a stamina potion to extend a, a, a paraglide thing, if I was going into a particularly hard battle and I needed a little extra... I'd made sure that I had the whatever, you know, the the thing that gave you the most extended yellow hearts, and I would just eat that before I went into the battle as the quick boost. So this this system's there for you to decide what trade-offs you want, but still not to feel handicapped by them. It's like, oh, didn't get enough hearts and made a bad trade-off? You have options. You can figure out some recipes and have some food and stockpile it so that when you need that extra, you can get it. And same deal with the potions. Yeah. No, that's that that's yeah, fair enough. And, and I like the fact that the two different strategies work uh, either way, and it's... It's uh, it's interesting um, the the choices that people have made. So I just want to um, ask a couple of little, little questions, and that is um, in terms of amiibos. So which amiibos, Breath of the Wild amiibos, do you have? I wanted to get a whole bunch of amiibos for Breath of the Wild. I could not find anyone who would sell them to me. I, maybe I waited too long to buy them, or maybe they didn't have U.S. stock or whatever. Like I just I just could not buy them. I had money in my hand, ready to give Nintendo. Wow. 
for Amiibos, and I could not find them to buy. So what I ended up doing was I bought the one or two that I could get. I think I have, like, I think Wolf Link came with, did he come with the game? I've got Wolf uh, Link. Wolf, Wolf Link came with uh, Twilight Princess HD, I think, yeah. Yeah, all right. So I've got Wolf Link, and maybe one other one. Maybe I have a, a, one of the Zeldas. And then for the rest, I bought little tiny NFC things off eBay. <laughs> you know, like little piece of paper with the NFC yep. thing on it, mm-hmm. which yep. it's like, it's not because I wanted to save money. It's annoying to use eBay. I would have bought those Amiibos. I just literally could not find anyone who would take my money and give me a stupid Amiibo. So I think I have like most of the Amiibos that you need to have in, in tiny paper form, which is totally boring. And I wish I had the plastic ones, but I don't. Well, that's okay. I I have a not not quite the same kind of a story, but I certainly also waited too long. So when I got the game, when I got the Switch, I actually got the Switch um, as a, a surprise uh, birthday present from my wife, which is a, a quite a an, an amazing present. Um, and, and thank you for that too, by the way, darling, if you're listening. But point is that that was um, enough of an expenditure um, just with that. Zelda plus the Switch was enough. So I didn't get any Amiibos initially, and I kept on saying, I'll just... I'll grab them. I'll grab them later because I actually got that about six months or so thereabouts. Anyway, I think after the Switch came out, so I didn't get it when it first was released. And I thought I'll just get them later. I'll just get them later. And, and as I'd go to the shops, I just I'd notice that they were disappearing, or there were less and less of them. And I'm like, I really should get in and buy those. So one day, I actually I had, I, I got the Guardian, uh, you know, Walking Guardian, and I also got. Uh, Daruk and I got Daruk um, because my youngest son who was uh, seven at the time uh, was really into playing as well so we actually started to have to have a sharing agreement um, with with the Switch and um, so he in in quotes he got um, uh, Daruk uh, as the as a present so I uh, was able to um, benefit from that as well which worked out nicely um, they got me a um, uh, about six months or something like that. I think it was around Christmas or early next, early the next year. They gave me uh, my my family got me a uh, um, Archer Link as well, and I said, "Oh, I want the I really wanted the champions. I really wanted the champions." And then I went looking and I couldn't find them, and they they were all gone. And so I scoured um, eBay and Gumtree, and over a, a series of about three or four months, I gradually acquired the others. So I now actually have um, Rivali. I have Mifa, but. I got Mifa cheap on Gumtree sent up from Melbourne and Mifa doesn't have a spear anymore, a trident anymore. So that's been broken off, but you know, that's, that's okay. So anyway, so I ended up with all of them. And um, so, cause I just wanted to get all the divine helms and that is so, uh, I don't know. Okay. I'm a sucker, but never mind. So yeah, I would have bought them if they were available, but yeah, I think I just waited too long. Like, I, and I didn't wait, I got the game on launch. It's not like I waited. I, I feel like maybe I didn't even think I was going to care about the amiibo until too late. And maybe it was like two weeks later, or maybe they were never available. I just seemed to me that maybe I saw the amiibo once in a store before I was interested in buying them, and then just never again. I've just literally never seen them in person after that. Yeah, no, they uh, the champion ones they don't make them anymore, and the other ones uh, you'll find them in a used bin somewhere. Maybe some of these game stores will have you know trade in programs and so on. There's always lots of Skylander amiibos, but anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't I don't know who wants them, but anyway, um, okay. So um, you mentioned before that you you powered up Master Sword to um, to maximum, which would suggest that you finished the um, the Master Sword uh, trial. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming. Yes. Okay. Um, I'll put my hand up and say I think I'm at level 17 and couldn't get any further, and I really need to get back to that at some point. Uh, it's on the to-do list. Um, That's one of the most challenging 
combat things in any Zelda ever, just because it's so unforgiving, mm-hmm. uh, particularly that you have to learn how to do the shield parry consistently, and it's really hard. The timing is very punishing, and you just, you just have to do it, and it's you have to do it consistently multiple times in a row in an extended session. Otherwise, you just don't make it. Yeah, exactly. And I... Uh, the times that I've tried to put that effort in um, to to do it in a sitting, I just, um, I, yeah, I just have, uh, yes, I kind of lost it at the end when I, <laughs> I was doing level seventeen, and I was, oh god, here we go. It's so again. it's and, so and, worth it though to have sixty, sixty all the time. It's so worth it. <laughs> yes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have another crack at that, and I'm definitely gonna do that. Um, okay, so you've got both the DLCs. Um, I, I'm assuming. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. yep. Same here. Uh, so I finished the game in um, normal mode and I, I actually logged in and checked after I switched to master mode and um, I hadn't actually played in normal mode since the 7th of January 2018 at 8.55 p.m. That was the last save game I had. All the rest of the time since January last year, so that's 14 months ago at time of recording, I've been playing in master mode. And I've chosen not to take on Ganon because I want to basically do everything else first, being a bit of a completionist. So um, in normal mode, I went a bit psycho with the uh, Korok seeds. I actually collected 444 of them. And so that was enough, I think, to unlock all of the squares for extra swords, extra shields, uh, and uh, extra uh, bows. And uh, I haven't got that far in master mode. I've only got about 123 and um, I have almost upgraded all of the outfits to full, almost. Um, but I'm still struggling with the uh, the two. Tw- um, I said almost said Twilight. Um, uh, you know the uh, the illusory realm when you go to redo the Divine Beasts after you do the Champions Trials. So I haven't been able to finish uh, two of the Divine Beasts to get my um, uh, faster recharge times, and and hence I haven't got my Master Cycle Zero. But I did in the normal mode, so. Um, total playtime for me, uh, is kind of scary when I actually looked at it and I'm not sure I should have, but I did, um, 520 hours. So yikes. Those numbers aren't so scary compared to my destiny numbers. So you're fine. <laughs> okay. So, um, so from, how about you? You said you don't, you'd played through it once. Have you, um, yeah, I don't tend not, I tend not to go back to the, like the master harder modes because I, I don't want the combat to be more difficult. It's, it's well balanced for my, my abilities. Sure. Um, and on Breath of the Wild in particular, I, I haven't done all the things that, that you've done. Like I, I, I think I have like maybe 200 Korok seeds, right? Um, but I have, like I've, I've done so many of the side quests and collected so many things, right? that I don't want to give that up. I can't even imagine starting over. Like, despite the fact that I've played so much more than other games, like, I've played Ocarina maybe three times, and I 100% at Ocarina. Like, I did everything you can do in that game, period. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I haven't done that with many Zelda... Well, let me see. 100% did Twilight Princess. I didn't 100% Skyward Sword because of this boss challenge mode that was driving me nuts. Um, so I tend to... But, like... Those linear games, it doesn't feel as bad to me to go back to the beginning and start over. But for some reason, Breath of the Wild, I don't want to give up like my stuff. I don't want to. I don't want to. Like maybe it's because I, I built the house, which is not that complicated. It's a very small side quest of like you know. Again, everything's a side quest. Um, <laughs> yeah. I have my little house. I have my stuff. I have the things that I did. And I just I don't feel the urge to start over again and, and start fresh. I I think it's partly because I feel like there's still more to do. 
because I haven't charged up every item, because I don't have all the amiibo stuff yet. I did get the motorcycle, I did do all the DLC, I do have the sword charged up, but I still feel like there's more stuff to do, and there's always more Korok seeds. So maybe if I ever got to the point where I 100%ed Breath of the Wild, which who knows if that will ever happen. Like, I haven't even done all the shrines. I've got like 110 shrines or something like that. Like, there are a few, you know, the stragglers out there. Right. I don't feel the urge to start over. I think I only have 200 hours into it, maybe. Uh, one of my favorite features of the game is I think it came out in the DLC or whatever, where it shows you the path where the paths where you've walked on the map. Yes, which is yes, brilliant. Yes. I I only wish that it did that infinitely instead of eventually erasing your your trail. I think after two hundred hours it starts erasing, but mm. once it showed me that it was like, you just see how much the landscape guides where you go because there's whole yeah. swaths where you've never been. You've seen them from every possible angle, but you've never actually been there. So then it became like the new the new sub game for me was. Go to the places you haven't been before. Like, not for any reason or to get anything, just go to them. And that, that became a fun mini game for me. So I haven't played the game in a long time because I've, you know, been back doing Destiny or whatever. But I still feel like, I feel like I am still playing the game. That I have not yeah. finished the game. Obviously, I began it long ago and everything like that. But that's another minor complaint. Like, I've heard a lot of people talk about this. I wish you could beat Ganon and continue to play the game after that in a world where you have beat Ganon. And I know that's not the Zelda way. The Zelda way is always your last save is right before you challenge Ganon. But I like the idea of disinfecting Hyrule Castle. You can leave the Guardians around there, have them still running around or whatever, but just like, I would love to restore Hyrule Castle slowly, like a massive version of Tarrytown, yeah. right? Having having a post-end game where you could just keep playing, because all of us do just keep playing the game, but it's kind of annoys me that Ganon is like out there in my game world undefeated. Yeah, that's true, and it's it's kind of funny that um, I, when I finished the game, and my wife came in and said, "You're still playing it." I'm like, "Well, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah." Like, well, I'm not done with the game. I've just I've completed the main story, but there's way and and I'd got the good ending and everything. Like, I did enough of the game to get the complete ending. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I did end up finishing all the shrines, but um, and I've done the same in Master Mode as well, but. I don't know. I guess I, to be perfectly honest, the whole Breath of the Wild thing, I've just put it on pause so I can go back and play Twilight Princess. So there you go, um, trading one for another. But um, yeah, I feel like you've you've wrung out Breath of the Wild. You've got you've yeah. got most of what you're going to get from it. I'm, and the amount of hours you put in, it's not approaching Destiny levels, but Destiny is the, like Destiny is the type of game because it involves other people so much and because it's a more steady trickle of new content that comes out that you can just keep playing it forever and ever, and you'll never feel like you finish it until the developer stops releasing new content for it. Yeah. Breath of the Wild is not like that. It's got two DLCs or whatever it had. That's all there's ever going to be. Uh, and it's a huge amount of content, but you can't actually get through it. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And and the other, so far as my playing Breath of the Wild goes, is that I feel like um, I've missed out on a few things along the way uh, in the Zelda uh, timeline that I want to go back and make sure that I'm not missing out. And... Um, just playing Twilight Princess, I getting so much further than I did last the very first time I played it over a decade ago, and um, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And I was just, um, I was just, I, I love doing the Temple of Time. I love being able to walk through that uh, in, in, that that uh, portal and go back into the past. And yeah, just it's, uh, I don't know, it's fun, it's playful, it's um, it's it's really really so much fun. And I and I'm glad that I did uh, I did invest in it, even if it was. Uh, uh, a little bit after the fact, but um, that doesn't diminish how good the game is. So, yeah, Twilight Princess and Wind Waker both also have. We didn't talk about the music in, Twi- in, in Breath of the Wild, but Twilight Princess in particular has some of the best Zelda music ever, like fitting with the Zelda theme. Breath of the Wild wisely, I think, has an entirely different music style that 
takes a backseat to the environment, which is the right thing to do for this game, but it is another aspect of the game that, like, I didn't miss it because I think Breath of the Wild's music is perfect for the game that it's in, but I love the sort of bombast and, and sort of symphonic nature of the Twilight Princess music, uh, and, uh, and, and Wind Waker has some great tunes, too, so I, I would love to see a return to those, even if they, you know, I don't know, like, I in a post-Breath of the Wild world, I don't want the big orchestral music messing with my experience of the wild like breath of the wild is such a perfect title for that game because i really do when i think about that game i'm thinking about being outdoors and like connecting with nature which is such a weird thing to say about like just a game with a bunch of you know pixels and polygons but uh but I, yeah i i, I that's you know twilight princess i think has my favorite zelda music that there's ever been in a zelda game especially if you get like the soundtrack that comes with it to hear the the uh the symphonic versions of, of all that stuff um and breath of the wild's music is very different from that but i, I love them both yeah it's a good point actually i uh because when you're standing in the in well i was going to say in hyrule field but i mean you know pick pick a pick a pick a spot in breath of the wild if it's if you're up in the cold in the mountains then you'll hear that you know that's sort of like that wistful um cold wind blowing and um if it's a clear night then you just hear this sort of like um very very faint sort of wind blowing sound and it adapts to your environment but there's no real backing musical score whereas if it go back to ocarina you, you go for a, a run into uh, grudo valley and it starts playing the grudo music and you know i be personally i love that music i actually had that as my ringtone for for about two years uh, that was before i gave up on ringtones and went to apple watch and haptics and all that but never mind uh, but i did i really enjoyed that and that you're right it, breath of the wild is a very different feel for the uh for the, the the backing score and there's not a single tune i guess in breath of the wild that really jumps out to me as being um yeah i don't know as striking or as amazing but uh, the, all the other aspects of the game are so good that you, I think it, I think it is kind of fitting for what it's trying to do, and it is, it makes the game feel more authentic and more real, and that's, and that's maybe that's the attraction in the end. There is more music than you think there is. It's mostly just tinkling pianos, but there are actual tunes. They're just spread. They're so sort of distributed and stretched out over the back of of uh, sort of environmental sounds. Like if you get the. Uh, breath of the wild soundtrack and play a track you will feel like you're back in that place and you'll realize oh i really did get a sense of place from this song but it is very laid back Mm. almost entirely piano and other tinkling things very subtle okay well i might give that a shot actually i haven't listened to the soundtrack i have um the soundtrack for ocarina of time but anyhow um well i say soundtrack i think someone recreated it or something i don't think it was official but in any case um so talking a little bit about the future then, and um, should probably think about wrapping this up. We could probably talk for hours, but we probably shouldn't. Um, um, the I just saw an announcement um, on the Switch as I was checking my play hours actually um, before the before we recorded that uh, they've announced Link's Awakening is coming to the Switch, um, which should the the little promo interest looked looked interesting, and uh, so that's happening this year. And I believe that the next Zelda is under development, but it may be out either later this year, but far more likely it's probably going to be next year. But I think it's pretty much a given that there won't be a Wii U version. And <laughs> hopefully that's a, yeah. well, hopefully like, that, that's, that leads to better. Link's, Link's Awakening mm. is a portable game. It was a 2D game and they're giving it sort of the uh, Link Between Worlds uh, treatment, sure. which is one of the rare portable Zelda games that I did buy because it was sort of like, you know, it's it's 2D, but made with 3D geometry because we're in this modern era 
Um, but uh, Link's Awakening is a, like a, a total remake. Same map, same idea, but it's all new, you know, because it was an t- actual 2D game and it's no longer actual 2D. Um, I don't think I'll end up buying or playing that just because it's a port of an old game and because I'm not that into 2D Zelda games, and I'll just patiently wait for the next quote-unquote real Zelda game. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, cool. Well, um, I'm just uh, thinking if there's anything else uh, to mention at this point, we should... <laughs> I feel like there's probably still more to say because it's such a huge game. But to be honest, um, maybe we should uh, um, should draw it there. I think it's been nearly two hours. Yeah, I'll, I'll put these. I mentioned the two uh, videos, YouTube videos, the No Climbing but Breath of the Wild and the Mario 64 Half A Press. I highly recommend people check out these videos. They are very entertaining and informative. The Mario 64 one will blow your mind and the Breath of the Wild one will just be a laugh riot. So. If you have show notes, hopefully these links will be in them. They will be in the show notes. Fantastic. All right. Well, if you want to talk more about this, uh, you can reach me on the Fediverse at Chigi at engineered.space or you can follow at engineered underscore net on Twitter to see show-specific announcements. And we've recently started a YouTube channel if you're interested in that. If you're enjoying Pragmatic and you want to support the show, you can via Patreon at patreon.com slash John Chigi or one word with a thank you to all of our patrons and a special thank you to our silver producers, Carsten Hansen and John Whitlow, and an extra special thank you to our gold producer known only as R. Patron rewards include a named thank you on the website, a named thank you at the end of episodes, access to raw detailed show notes, as well as ad-free high quality releases of every episode. With patron audio now also available via individual audio feeds on Breaker. So if you'd like to contribute something, anything at all, there's lots of great rewards. And beyond that, it's all really, really appreciated. Beyond that, there's lots of other ways to help, like leaving a rating or review on iTunes, uh, favoriting the episode in your podcast player app, or sharing the episode or show with your friends all via social. All those things will help others to discover the show and can make a huge difference too. I'd personally like to thank Clubhouse for sponsoring the Engineered Network. If you're looking for an easy-to-use software development project management solution that everyone can use, remember to specifically visit this URL, clubhouse, or one word, .io slash 10 the word, to check it out and give it a try. It'll surprise you just how easy it can be. Pragmatic's part of the Engineered Network, and you can find it at engineered.network, along with other great shows like Causality, which is a solo podcast that I do that looks at the cause and effect of major events and disasters in history, including Deepwater Horizon, the Columbia Space Shuttle, Concorde, and lots more. Causality is on track to over, overtake uh, Pragmatic in popularity, so if you haven't heard it yet, make sure you give it a listen. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with uh, John, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you, mate? Uh, my last name on Twitter, Syracuse. Uh, you can find me there. I do read my timeline and I, uh, you know, tweet every once in a while. And I do have a website that I almost never update, but yet it continues to exist at hypercritical.co. Fantastic. It's a good one. Check it out. All the old, uh, all the stuff on there is still very relevant. So I'm glad that that is still, uh, still alive. Oh, and I do have a podcast or two. I mean, you can find them linked from hypercritical.co, but the main one is Accidental Test Podcast. I'm on that podcast every week. Fantastic. Look forward to it every week too. So that's awesome. Uh, so thank you, uh, everybody for listening. Thank you. Special thank you to the patrons and, um, thank you for coming on again John it's been fantastic yeah let's meet back here in five more years when hopefully the next Zelda game is out oh done it's a date <laughs> <laughs>